Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia. A global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com A new dollar store will open up every six hours this year in this country. There are more dollar stores and there are Walmarts and McDonald's combined, according to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, which is an advocacy group. How do those dollar stores affect a community. Sarah Gonzalez of NPR's Planet Money podcast has more. There are more than $30,000 stores in the U.S. By comparison, there are about 5,000 Walmarts. And Stacy Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance says dollar stores are threatening the small businesses that survived Walmart. It's as though they're coming into a compromised ecosystem. It's like an invasive species. Mitchell says dollar stores are oversaturating communities. When you're coming into places that are absolutely saturated already with your stores and you decide to open more, I mean, that's a bid to so sort of dominate the local retail scene that no one else can compete with you. The three main dollar store chains turned down requests for a recorded interview. But the dollar store that is growing the fastest, Dollar General, did say that their customers are only willing to travel three to five miles to shop with them, which is why they open so many stores so close to each other. But in North Tulsa, Oklahoma, City Councilwoman Vanessa Hall Harper says there are too many. There is no place in her district that's more than a mile from another dollar store. Exactly, because they proliferated already. Hall Harper was elected on a platform promising to bring a grocery store to North Tulsa, which has no grocery store but 11 dollar stores. But I was saying this has to have an effect on the ability of a grocery store to come in and be successful. There's a couple of counselors of like, well, there's no studies to show that what you're saying is, is accurate. I don't need no damn study. Dollar stores are not grocery stores, but they do sell things like cereal and canned food and Twinkies and paper towels, the high profit items. 
They don't usually sell fresh fruit or meat or vegetables. You don't make a ton of profit on lettuce and bananas. So Hall Harper is thinking that if dollar stores are allowed to keep opening up new stores, it won't be worth it to a real grocery store. So she sets out to prevent any new dollar store from opening up. Not in all of Tulsa, just in her district. I was told this was illegal. You can't do this. You know, we're going to get sued and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't care about getting sued as long as we won. But cities do not like to restrict new business. So I started doing my research. Hall Harper learns about a city in California, Coronado, that has what's called formula business restrictions. They had a policy in place that at no time will there ever be more than 10 national chain stores. So I don't care if it was a McDonald's, Burger King, whatever. It was a real example of a place restricting business and saying it's good for us. The proposal before the Tulsa City Council was to limit dollar stores in particular and create incentives for grocery stores and fresh produce. A couple city councilors voted against it. Please don't start throwing tomatoes and stuff like that at me. Okay? They don't have tomatoes. They would have... Well, don't start throwing Cheetos. Packages and... of Twinkies and stuff. Okay, 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 okay. It okay. barely passes. Five to four. In effect, no new dollar stores can open up in North Tulsa. Then New Orleans, North St. Louis, Haskins, Ohio, they all called Vanessa Hall Harper saying, we think we have too many dollar stores too. Mesquite City, Texas passed restrictions right away. And North Tulsa is expected to break ground on a grocery store this summer. Sarah Gonzalez, NPR News, New York. Biotech companies are using tools to tweak the genes of common food crops. They call it gene editing. And there is a lot of confusion about exactly how much government oversight these crops will get. NPR's Dan Charles has the story. The company Calix in Minnesota wanted to make a new kind of soybean where the oil is a little healthier, more like olive oil. Some wild relatives of soybean already have oil like this because a few of their genes are slightly different with particular mutations. Manaj Sahu, the company's chief commercial officer, says that led to a question. Can we have those same mutations in the modern varieties which are grown by our farmers? The company deployed new technology, similar to a famous gene editing technique called CRISPR. Sahu calls it a genetic scissors, which can go in and cut the soybean plant's DNA very precisely. It does the cut and then comes out. And there is no foreign material or foreign genes in the soybean. This is really important because if you insert new genes into a soybean, maybe you copied them from another kind of plant or bacteria, that's considered a genetically modified organism, a GMO. You need government approval to sell a new GMO. It can take years, millions of dollars. But if you just take a little slice out of a gene, if you edit it and don't add anything, that's a gray area. The European Union's decided that's still a GMO. The U.S., though, says it's not. And you don't necessarily need to get explicit government approval to sell that product. Calix did ask for approval from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug Administration and got it. We think it is important to build consumer trust and also food safety, which is critical, to go through that oversight process. On the other hand, there's a gene editing company in San Diego called Cebus that's selling a new kind of canola seed. And Cebus never asked the USDA or the FDA to formally approve it. Now, Cebus actually used an older technology to create its canola. It induced lots of random mutations in canola plants by multiplying them in the lab in petri dishes. 
Then it found exactly the mutation it wanted. Companies have been doing this for decades and never had to get government approval. So Cebus didn't need to in this case either. And the company's executives say they also wouldn't have to if they did this with the newer gene editing tools. Greg Jaffe, director of the Biotechnology Project at the Center for Science and the Public Interest, says it's a troubling precedent. I don't think Cebus is violating any law, but I think it points out the fact that this is a voluntary process and that in the future, companies may or may not go through that process. For a lot of consumers, that's not going to be acceptable, he says. Gene editing is new. It's powerful. And people will have a lot of questions about it, including, is my food genetically edited? The first step in having a discussion about technology is knowing what's out there. So Jaffe says, let's at least have an official, comprehensive list of every gene-edited crop that farmers are harvesting and selling. I think there should be a registry of these products, agricultural crops that are going to go on the market that have been gene-edited. I reached out to several biotech companies to see what they thought of Jaffe's idea. They were noncommittal. Several of them said they want some kind of government oversight of this technology. They know that's essential for public acceptance. But the companies also are trying to avoid anything that suggests to consumers that gene-edited food is somehow different from every other food, and thus perhaps more dangerous. Dan Charles, NPR News. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. And now, a word from the president. Sports champions, as we've seen, frequently visit the White House. But in this divided political time and with bitterly polarized attitudes about President Trump, it's no longer a routine practice. As Jamis Alcindor reports, many famous players are taking action off the field. A moment of celebration for some of the Boston Red Sox. The 2018 Red Sox never gave up and never backed down. For others, it was a White House boycott. That's because some members of the 2018 World Series championship team did not show up for the traditional White House visit. Even Red Sox manager Alex Cora chose not to attend. He's from Puerto Rico, and today he told a radio show he's troubled by President Trump's response to Hurricane Maria. I'm the guy that has lived it. I'm the guy down there, you know, in the offseason. I understand how it is, you know, and uh, I, I just don't feel right going and celebrate while people are struggling by home. On display today, a stark racial divide. Most white players came, but all but one of the team's black and Latino players, like star pitcher David Price and MVP Mookie Betts, did not. The event comes as President Trump awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Tiger Woods on Monday. Events like today's have long been a bipartisan White House tradition. Thanks for salvaging my bracket. But President Trump's past statements, especially tied to race, have led to deep divides among athletes about attending. Some still come to the White House ceremonies, but many of the most well-known players in sports have not. In 2017, the president publicly criticized quarterback Colin Kaepernick for kneeling during the national anthem. That same year, the reigning NBA champions, the Golden State Warriors, say they would boycott the White House visit. President Trump claimed he disinvited them. And a visit by the 2018 Super Bowl champions, the Philadelphia Eagles, was canceled after a number of players said they would not attend. 
Let's explore this divide a bit more. The Red Sox visit today is just one chapter in President Trump's tense relationship with some athletes. To talk about this, I'm joined by Kevin Blackestone. He's a national sports columnist for The Washington Post, a regular contributor to ESPN, and a professor of journalism at the University of Maryland. Thanks so much, Kevin, for being here. There is a split here. Some Red Sox players showed up to the White House. Others chose not to come. What do you make of that? And what does it say about what these sports events at the White House have become under President Trump? Well, you know, just when President Trump was elected, I did a, a video column over at The Washington Post about this very issue, about the, the tradition of sports teams and champions coming to the White House. And I said then, and, and I think I would certainly amplify it again now, that if you believe that sports are some sort of elixir for all the ills that are in our society, racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, then it would be disingenuous for you as a sportsman or sportswoman to accept an invitation to congratulate you for a championship from this president. And I think that's what you saw borne out uh, more starkly in this Boston Red Sox event than any other. Because in other instances, either teams have not gone or either teams have been disinvited. But this time, half the team showed up and half the team did not, basically in protest. And the racial division uh, was so stark that it just couldn't be ignored. Earlier in the year, the Clemson University football team also visited the White House. Most of the black players there didn't show up. Most of the white players did show up. What do you make of that racial divide, given the history of the United States? Well, I think that this president has returned us to a time when we thought about how divisive things were between black folks and white folks in this country, or maybe in this case, expanded to all people of color and white folks in this country. And I think if you look at what uh, happened with Clemson, or certainly if you look at what happened with the Red Sox, um, it's very clear. Um, and I think it's, it's important to point out people of color because a lot of people talk about baseball not having as many black players as it used to. Um, but you know who didn't come to this White House? Uh, the progeny of enslaved Africans from this country, the progeny of enslaved Africans from the Caribbean, the progeny of enslaved Africans from South America. They all didn't come. So in one way, it created some unity, I think, among uh, black American players and black players from the, from the Caribbean and from South America. Um, but it also, once again, just underscored uh, how divisive the politics are under this particular administration. Uh, you heard Alex Cora talking about uh, his concern about Puerto Rico and what has happened to Puerto Rico under this, uh, under this presidency um, after it was struck uh, uh, by the hurricane. Um, and we know how many black players have felt about this presidency's approach to uh, matters concerning uh, the Black Lives Matters movement. Mm -hmm. And so all of this has really come to a head uh, in this event. There's also this issue of Tiger Woods. He got honored at the White House earlier this week. What does him being honored mean, you think, for this issue going forward? We know that uh, President Trump and Tiger Woods have a long history uh, on the golf course. And so I think that President Trump saw this as an opportunity to wrap himself in the glow uh, of the moment of, of Tiger Woods. And we know that Tiger Woods has had a very spotty record when it comes to speaking out on political matters, um, whether it was about women being ad admitted to Augusta 
or whether uh, it was about um, other issues. In fact, he didn't stand up for President Obama until after President Obama was elected. Um, so uh, that was a, this was an issue um, for, for Tiger Woods and for the president that I think a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, understood the ramifications of. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kevin Blackasone. Thank you. When you don't vote, you can't sit on a jury. You have no right to complain about the police because you won't even go and vote so you can even sit on a jury. Uh, as I've told, uh, said to the cows when I first started to call in, I spent 11 years on a job where, where I worked for a bank and had to sit in court day after day after day after day. And I watched them select juries. I watched black people going to jail, black people have white, having white probation officers, and the whole judicial system um, just truncated with white supremacy. And a great deal of it, could have been, some of it could be lesson if black people simply voted. As the list of Democrats running for president now tops more than 20, candidates again hit early primary states this weekend. Lisa Desjardins will get the take from our Politics Monday duo in a moment. But first, Yamichelle Sindor brings us up to speed on the latest from the campaign trail. In South Carolina, chance of We Want Joe. This weekend, former Vice President Joe Biden made his first campaign stop in the state. In Columbia, he set out to directly appeal to black voters. He denounced the, quote, legacy of systemic racism and referenced his former boss, President Barack Obama. Just as Barack says, you know, when two equally qualified people, one Jamal and one John, they both apply for a job and John gets the job. That's a reality in America. In the early voting state of South Carolina, unlike Iowa and New Hampshire, the majority of Democratic primary voters are black. South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg also rallied in South Carolina over the weekend. Sunday at a high school, he spoke to a crowd in North Charleston. He later acknowledged that he needs better outreach to black voters. The mayor has made faith a cornerstone of his campaign. Earlier on Sunday in Georgia, he attended former President Jimmy Carter's Sunday school. In Iowa, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders crisscrossed the state in a series of rallies. He pushed back on Vice President Biden, one saying Biden has the most progressive record in the race. In an interview with ABC's This Week, Sanders didn't hold back. Joe voted for the war uh, in Iraq. I led the effort against it. Joe voted for NAFTA and permanent normal trade relations, trade agreements with China. I led the effort against that. If you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. A host of other candidates also campaigned in Iowa this weekend, including Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, and former Representative Beto O'Rourke of Texas. Meanwhile, at an NAACP event in Detroit, Kamala Harris went after President Trump's rhetoric. Let's speak truth here and today. This president isn't trying to make America great. He's trying to make America hate. Today, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker released a sweeping gun control agenda with more than two dozen policy proposals. One would require all gun owners to be licensed by the federal government. In a statement, Booker said, quote, I am sick and tired of hearing thoughts and prayers for the communities that have been shattered by gun violence. It is time for bold action. With more than 20 candidates vying for 20 spots in the first Democratic debates in June, presidential hopefuls are trying to break through to voters. 
For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Yami Shalsendor. Why are you bringing up old shit? You know, in elections around the corner when a barrage of political memoirs start coming out. The latest belongs to Jill Biden, wife of former Vice President Joe Biden, who is running for president a third time. Jill Biden recounts some better-known stories of her life, like juggling what happens in the White House while teaching at a community college, or initially rejecting Biden's many marriage proposals years ago. But she also shares some intimate anxieties, including becoming a permanent presence for Biden's two young boys after they lost their mother and baby sister in a car accident. I had to be 100 percent sure that this marriage was going to work because they had already lost one mother. And I wanted to make sure that they didn't lose a second mother, you know, through divorce. Mm -hmm. So that was really important to me. Joe Biden's book is called Where the Light Enters. And a big part of her own story is navigating the role of political spouse. You make clear in your book that this is a family that makes decisions together. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to your husband's presidential ambitions, you you haven't always thought it was the right time for him to run. You've nixed that idea before. Why do you and your family expect things to be different this go-round? Well, I know things will be different this time around. And we talked to our older children and then... Just a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, we called our grandchildren together, all five of them, into the library, and we said, Pop's thinking about running, and we said to them, this is going to be hard. You've been through races before, but if you don't want this to happen, we will not do this. And, I mean, they were so enthusiastic. Yes, Pop has to run. He has to run. This is his time. And I felt like it was his time, too, because Joe unites people, and I think that's what this country is looking for now. This presidential campaign comes at this moment in our culture where we are all paying so much more attention to allegations of sexual assault, to allegations of Mm -hmm. sexual harassment. And in the week or so since your husband announced his bid for the presidency, critics have levied some claims against him, mm-hmm. in particular, revisiting his role in the 1991 Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings. What do you remember of those hearings? Well, I watched the hearings like most other Americans. And um, so, I mean, Joe said, as I did, we believed Anita Hill. He voted against Clarence Thomas. I mean, he's called Anita Hill. They've spoken He apologized for uh, the way the hearings were run. And so now it's kind of it's time to move on. Why did he wait until he was running for president to call her? Well, I guess it was just uh, just not the right time, maybe. So um, he he wanted to call her. I think he didn't know whether she would take his call. Mm -hmm. And he was so happy that she did take his call and uh, they spoke And I think he was, you know, I think they came to an agreement. A lot of people know your husband because he has been so transparent about his losses that have Mm -hmm. been immense over a lifetime, including the death of your son, Bo Biden, who died of cancer in 2015. Mm -hmm. And this is such a personal pain. And it's hard to imagine trying to endure it in the public eye. And you all went to great lengths to to make sure that it was personal when he was sick and getting treatment. Yeah, we um, we really did not tell anybody, and uh, except for um, Barack and Michelle. And, uh, 
you know, Bo wanted to keep it private. He didn't want people to feel sorry for him. And and I have to tell you, Rachel, I mean, I, as a mother, I mean, I never thought he, he would die. I mean, I kept that hope till the end that he was going to live and he was going to get well and then he was going to go run for governor. And um, and that was the hope we had. But we, we lived a double life. I spent every day at the hospital and then I'd have to go teach and then come back or have to go to an event and then come back to the hospital. So it was um, hard. And that's what I I try to get across to my students, you know, that acts of kindness are so important because you never really know what's behind someone's smile. There is a part in the book where you describe what it is like to be bonded to other people who have lost children. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you if you wouldn't mind reading a section of that. Sure. Membership to this fraternity comes with no guide, and I have no advice, no wisdom to dole out to new initiates. A friend of mine lost her son, a firefighter, in a terrible blaze. He was young with two kids, and they carried his body to the grave wrapped in an American flag. I wanted so badly to offer her words of hope or to tell her it's going to get better. But I don't know if that's true. Instead, I wrote her a note to say I was thinking about her and that she isn't alone. That's the truest thing I can say to parents who know this impossible pain. You are not alone. You're right that you can almost see this pain in other people and how they carry themselves. I can. How does it manifest? Well, it's it's strange, but I think I can see it in the eyes of people when they approach me. And a lot of mothers who have lost their children do approach me. And I can see it. I can feel it even before they reach me. And it's um, it's like it's a secret society that nobody wants to be a part of. But we offer one another comfort because we know the pain that we still feel. So more conversations like this, more personal revelations, more scrutiny, more campaigning, having to defend your husband's record, the anxiety of a potential loss after giving so much. Are you really ready to do this again? (laughs) I am ready. I am ready. (laughs) I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it if we weren't ready. And Joe's ready. Our family is ready. We'll do it like we've always done it. We'll do it as a family. Former second lady, Jill Biden, her memoir, Where the Light Enters, is out today. Let me tell you something. You ain't a citizen no more, man. You can't vote. Anybody going to hire your ass? You're an outcast. Nobody wants you. Florida voters decisively chose last fall to restore the right to vote to nearly all people convicted of felonies. That's almost one and a half million people in the state. Now, state lawmakers have passed a bill to limit that right. It would block people convicted of felonies from voting unless they had paid back all court-ordered fees, fines, and restitution. The bill is now before the governor, as NPR's Greg Allen reports. The amendment, approved by 65% of the voters in November, restored the right to vote for felons except for those convicted of murder or a felony sex offense, quote, after they complete all terms of their sentence, including parole or probation. In Florida's legislature, the debate is over what that phrase, all terms of their sentence, means. Here's Republican Senator Jeff Brandis. I think as it relates to all fines and fees, it was very clear that they intended 
that this amendment include all things within the four corners of the sentencing document. Brandis was a sponsor of a bill passed last week that sets rules for restoring voting rights to felons. Proponents of the initiative say the legislation is unnecessary. The amendment approved by voters, they say, is self-implementing and shouldn't be subjected to interpretation by lawmakers. Although fines, fees, and restitution aren't mentioned in the ballot language, in the past, some backers of the amendment said they are part of a felon sentence. It's wrong like poll taxes were wrong. When it came up in Florida's House, Representative Geraldine Thompson was one of many Democrats who charged it was an attempt to keep minorities from voting. Under the old law, more than 20 percent of eligible African-American adults in the state were unable to vote. Thompson says it's a familiar story. And it continues Florida's pattern of disenfranchising a significant portion of the population. It's wrong. In Florida's House, sponsor Jamie Grant, a Republican, took exception to comments suggesting that this was about denying people the right to vote. He and many other Republicans, including Governor Ron DeSantis, maintained legislation was always going to be needed to turn the amendment into policy. Passing the ballot initiative, Grant says, was just the beginning. So this isn't the end of a story about redemption and restoration and second chances, but we also need to remember that the rule of law matters. The bill passed by the legislature allows felons to ask the courts to waive their outstanding fees, fines, and restitution, or convert them into community service hours. How that process would work, though, and how much of a burden it would place on the courts hasn't been determined. What's also not clear is how many felons have outstanding fines, fees, and pending restitution. It might include half of the state's 1.4 million felons. That's according to Desmond Mead, director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Mead helped put the measure, dubbed Amendment 4, on the ballot. He's disappointed with the bill, but says parts of it, for the first time, provide hope for returning felons. There is a mechanism that's there that could help relieve some, if not all, of the financial burden on uh, returning citizens. And so we're hopeful about that. Mead says for now he's focused on encouraging felons to register to vote. But he and other voting rights advocates are also considering a court challenge. Micah Kubik is director of ACLU Florida. They really said that your ability to vote is dependent upon your ability to pay money. And that is both contrary to the text and the spirit of Amendment 4, uh, but is also just really hostile to the values that we share as Americans. Governor DeSantis says he plans to sign the bill. Given all the questions raised, he believes a court challenge is likely. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Ahead of Mother's Day this weekend, we want to talk about some mothers who won't be marking the day with their children. That is, women who are incarcerated. Some 80% of them are mothers. Statistics also show that every day, 54,000 women across the country are behind bars without a conviction. They're there mainly because they can't afford bail. According to a report by the Prison Policy Initiative, black women are disproportionately affected. WBUR's Ariel Gray introduces us to the Boston-based group called We the People. It's helping to raise bail money for moms, and it's teaching children, some as young as four, about incarcerated mothers. On a rainy, gray afternoon at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design, Pieces of bright construction paper litter tabletops. Young children, assisted by their parents, fold, cut, stamp, and draw to create one-of-a-kind Mother's Day cards. This one's beautiful. Should we work on this one? Okay. The cards are for mothers of color who are incarcerated. The kids don't know the women who the cards are for, 
but the activity helps them understand that some moms don't get to celebrate Mother's Day with their families. Mother's Day cards, right? It's what kids do around Mother's Day, um, and you know. Oh, we're making cards. Oh, great, we're making cards. Oh, what is, go- what is going to be on these cards? It's not just, I love you, Mom. It's, I wish you were free. That's Tanya Nixon-Silberg. She co-founded Youth Social Justice Program, We the People, as a way to talk to children about big concepts like systemic racism and mass incarceration. Using storytelling and crafts, they break these concepts down into kid-friendly portions. All of We the People's workshops start with a book. It always revolves around a book. Um, and so we're reading a book called um, Dina Misses Her Mom. It's about this little girl whose mom is incarcerated. Accompanied with pictures and a narrative, We the People's other co-founder, Francie Latour, gently guides the kids from ages 4 to around 12 years old through these big ideas. What is jail for? Like, not just say you broke the law and then you did it. Like, like not like if you were jaywalking, not like if you broke that kind of law. Like, that's, that's like a simple law to break. But it, like if you saw something like he, what he said, or like you did something else that was bad. Most of the kids have similar responses. That prison is for bad people. But then a twist. Latour projects a picture on the screen and asks them to identify who it is. It's Rosa Parks. And do you know why she's holding this? She went to jail. She went to jail. Now, did Rosa Parks steal anything or do anything bad? Suddenly, the kids make the connection that good people can go to prison too. Latour uses a bike metaphor to explain systemic racism. Like the bike, racism requires many parts to function. It's a slow, step-by-step process. But by the end of story time, the children are visibly more comfortable with naming what incarceration is and how it impacts families, especially families of color. You know she misses her mother, Grandma says. She used to do everything with her. The kids see themselves as this child, and then they, they build some empathy around that, right? And then they feel like, oh, how would it feel to miss my mom? And that's, that's usually what we do. We, we tell the truth, and then we find, have, help the kids and help ourselves find a way out of it. No, I know. That's how the stamp works. Isn't that cool? Do you know what it says? Yeah. Can you read that word? Fabulous salt. Fabulous salt. That's a, such a great message to send someone, right? Alicia Sharang Semensky brought her three children. For her... This event reinforces the lesson she's teaching them at home. I think that the crafts sort of get them here, um, and it does feel a little bit like something they can do, but I, we see that it doesn't sound like they're listening in the moment, but when we come back to stuff, they, it seems like they have internalized a lot of what we're talking about. Organizers of the event say that hard topics, like the ones we the people discuss during story time, are usually avoided. The assumption is that kids can't, or won't understand. Here's Tanya Nixon-Silberg again. Because they are looking for it. Like, all of this stuff is in the ether, and they are absorbing all of this, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And if they have someone that's like, okay, this, yes, this is exactly, you see, there's something that's not fair. 
how do we fix it? Um, what can we do? What, what can't you make, baby? What do you need? Back out at the craft tables, five-year-old Myla Silberg finishes up her card. She hopes that it brightens the day of a mom in prison. Because uh, they are in jail and they have... They, they can't even get out, so it's going to be hard. And if they get caught, then they'll maybe find a way. There is no judgment or prejudice in her voice, only the belief that mothers belong with their families. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. A drug that helps patients stop using opioids and avoid a fatal overdose was prescribed almost exclusively to white Americans. That's according to a study out today from the University of Michigan. Martha Biebinger with member station WBUR explains that this is the first hard data showing that there's a racial gap when it comes to treating opioid use disorder. Between 2012 and 2015, overdose deaths surged in many states, and so did the number of visits during which a doctor or nurse practitioner would prescribe buprenorphine, brand name Suboxone. Study author Dr. Pooja Lagasetti says they looked at more than 13 million of those medical visits, but found no increase in prescriptions written for blacks. White populations are almost 35 times as likely to have a buprenorphine-related visit than black Americans. That was happening even though overdose deaths were rising faster for blacks during this period than for whites. This epidemic over the last few years has been framed as largely a white epidemic, but I, you know, we know now that that's not true. What is true, says Lagasetti, is that 75% of the white patients either paid cash for the buprenorphine visit or used private insurance. That doesn't explain the gap entirely, but Dr. Andrew Kolodny at Brandeis University says it's a big factor because only 5% of doctors have taken the eight-hour training needed to prescribe the drug. The few that are doing it are able to really name their price, and that's the reason why individuals with more resources who are more likely to be white are more likely to access treatment with buprenorphine. Dr. Nora Volkoff, who heads the National Institute on Drug Abuse, calls the study findings surprising and disappointing. We need to plunge into understanding why. What is responsible for these disparities? Because once we understand what is responsible, then we can tackle them. The authors of the study say health officials in each state need to look closely at how much Medicaid pays doctors to treat patients who are addicted. Higher reimbursement could ensure that doctors in high overdose areas prescribe buprenorphine and would encourage all prescribers to take insurance and not just cash. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. This story is part of a reporting partnership between NPR, WBUR, and Kaiser Health News. The death of Sandra Bland is back in the news. Bland is the 28-year-old black woman who was arrested in 2015 by a Texas state trooper during a traffic stop. Three days later, she was found dead in her jail cell, and her death was ruled a suicide. Now, the main record of her arrest came from the state trooper's dashboard camera. Then this week, another video surfaced publicly. 
It was from Sandra Bland's own cell phone. It is 39 seconds of the encounter with the trooper. You just opened my car door, you so you're going you're threatening to drag me out of my own car. Get out of the car! And then you're going to stop me? I will light me? you up. Get out! Wow. Now! Wow. wow. Get out of the car! Really for a failure to signal. You're doing all of this for Get a failure to signal. Get over there. Right, yeah. Yeah, let's take this to court. Okay, the trooper, Brian Encinia, was indicted on a charge of perjury. That was the only criminal charge he faced. I talked to one of Sandra Bland's sisters, Sharon Cooper, about the significance of this video. When families are impacted by a fatality due to police brutality, there is this incessant need for them to be put on trial Hmm. in the court of public opinion, and not just them, but the victims and the loved one that they've lost. And so what this video shows is that what happened to Sandy shouldn't have never happened to her. She should have never been arrested. And what we get to see in that video is what her experience was like from her personal vantage point. Texas law authorities said in a statement that this video was not newly discovered. They said it was part of the investigation. But Cooper says she had no idea it existed. It's not something that we saw. And if it's something that we saw, then we would have been making a greater demand for him to be charged with perjury. But he also should have been charged with assault as well. I think there was a lack of clarity from all those who saw the dash cam footage. But I think what this video shows is what happened inside of the car, which you don't get to see in that grainy dash cam footage. You and your family always believed that the story that was told was not the full story. But as you were watching the video, what did you feel like you understood? I understood that she was so passionate about being a part of criminal justice reform and police accountability to the degree that she'd have the courage to take an encounter that was unpleasant with the full intent, I imagine, of going to file a complaint against Brian Insinia. She even says it herself in the video. Let's take this to court, she says, doesn't she? Yes, she absolutely says, let's take this to court. And so I think we know that she got out of that car because she felt that if she didn't get out of the car, that she would have been tased to death. Just the impact of the words, I will light you up. I don't think that Brian Insinia expected to encounter someone who knows their rights. I think a lot of citizens don't know their rights when you get pulled over for a traffic violation. What, if anything, do you think would be different if this video had been made public right from the start of the investigation? I think there would have been an immediate amount of empathy for what transpired in the field and how that impacted her. So much of the conversation around Sandra's case lied within what happened in the field and what she should have done. And essentially, there's a swath of people who felt like she deserved to be there because of what they perceived that she did based off of the narrative that the police officer shared. You're talking about people who say, but she was aggressive with the police officer. He should have taken her out of the car. She was yelling back at him. And it's never that she was yelling back at him. It was this notion that she was aggressive with him in her car. And what you see is that she never was the aggressor, even up until the very last end of the video. She even refers to him as sir. Yes. That's a mannerable way to speak to someone. It's not until she has her face in the ground with his knee in her back that she becomes increasingly frustrated, rightfully so, because she's being assaulted. And the trooper was not, in fact, convicted. The deal that was struck was that he would leave law enforcement forever and not return. Is that right? What he agreed to do was render his law enforcement license in the state of Texas, okay? 
Hmm. He can't be a police officer in Texas, but he can be a police officer anywhere else. And he might very well be. What would you like to see happen now? Would you like to see the investigation reopened? While we'd like to see someone charged, unfortunately, the special prosecutors robbed us of that. They made the decision to dismiss the charges. So while ideally we would like to see Brian Insinia held accountable for his actions in the field, equally as we'd like to see Waller County jailers held accountable for the negligence that was shown in the jail, what we have focused our efforts on over the last couple of years is to enact action and change in other ways. You sound resigned to the fact that you won't get justice for your sister. Are you? I am not. I am not. And I'll tell you why. Because if you don't get the justice that you feel is due to you in the court of law, there are ways for you to enact change through partnering with legislators to make sure that there are laws in place so that there is not another Sandra Bland. If you were given the opportunity to sit down with the trooper who pulled your sister over, would you take it? And if you would, what would you say to him? I absolutely would take it, and I would ask him what was he thinking that day and why he failed to de-escalate the situation. And I'd also ask him, too, what he plans to do to fix it. You're not saying you want to yell at this man. You're not saying you want to blame him. You're saying you you want to... To ask we, him we, we blame him unequivocally without you do. a doubt. You do. And I, I'm happy to tell him as much. I have always felt Sandra being unlawfully arrested and that resulting in her wrongful death in police custody was influenced by his behavior in the field. What happened to Sandy was rooted in cause and effect. And that's on him to take accountability for that, and he's never publicly done that to this family. So I would definitely tell him that. Absolutely. Sharon Cooper is Sandra Bland's sister. Prosecutors dismissed Encinia's perjury charge, and in exchange, he agreed to never work in law enforcement again. His lawyer tells NPR that Encinia could technically apply for another law enforcement job outside the state of Texas, but has sworn he will not because, quote, he wants this nightmare behind him. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean, editorial today. The Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. (laughs) The Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink, under, under Trump, on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is end-stage white supremacy. See, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to 
survive. Unlike many other countries, the U.S. does not have laws to charge extremists with domestic terrorism, and there's growing talk about whether that should change. On Capitol Hill today, the House Homeland Security Committee took up this topic, and NPR National Security Correspondent Greg Myrie was watching. Welcome to the studio, Greg. Thanks, Ari. I think some people might be surprised to hear that extremists are not charged with domestic terrorism. Why is that the case? So federal law essentially defines terrorism as acting on behalf of a terrorist group, and there's a list of about 60 uh, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, but they're all foreign groups, mostly Islamists. Now, the U.S. government, law enforcement, even civil rights groups like the ACLU have always been very reluctant for the U.S. to create a list of sort of domestic terrorism groups. They point to free speech in the First Amendment and say this could be used to outlaw groups based on ideology. So a white supremacist group can espouse its ideology, but it can't act violently. That's, that's the key line. But there's always lawmakers who are sort of questioning this. And, and today at the committee hearing, uh, we have some, some tape of a Democratic congresswoman, Yvette Clark of New York, uh, speaking with the FBI's Michael McGarity, who's explaining the powers that are broader and a little different when it comes to foreign terror groups. Look How at, does it give you more latitude? They're if actually designated as a terrorist organization. So we don't designate white supremacist organizations as terrorist organizations. So a white supremacist organization is an ideology. It's a, but it's they're, a belief. They're not but it's designated not. as a terrorist organization. We don't have designated terrorist organizations on the that are domestic. Correct. This hearing seems to show some interest in creating a domestic terrorism law. How much of a push in Congress is there for this? Well, we are hearing lots of talk, both in Congress and, and outside. It often comes in response to these high-profile cases uh, involving the far right. Uh, more recently, shootings at synagogues and churches we've seen. And this always seems to reignite the debate. Why aren't we specifically calling this uh, terrorism? Why aren't there terrorism-related charges? But it's really talk at this stage and not action. Um, and every time a committee member raised it, uh, law enforcement would sort of nudge back. Here's uh, Michael McCall, a Texas Republican, speaking with uh, Brad Wiegman of the Justice Department. And I was, I was just curious what your thoughts would be on Congress enacting a domestic terrorism charge. Right. Designating domestic groups as domestic terrorist organizations and picking out particular groups that you say you disagree with their views and so forth is going to be highly problematic. Greg, I'm thinking defining domestic terrorism has got to be challenging. Depending on how you count it, how big a problem is this issue? So the FBI said it's investigating 850 cases right now. So uh, this certainly gives you a sense of the extent of the problem and how the resources they're devoting to it. Um, but a key point, these would not be prosecuted as, as terrorism cases. Uh, uh, a definition of de domestic terrorism exists in the Patriot Act, but in terms of actual killings and, and, and fatalities. We're talking about uh, six deadly attacks last year, 17 people killed. So the actual number of fatalities is, is low. I know there's also a debate about the role of social media and Congress is growing more critical of the social media giants. How, how is Congress responding on that front? So the, the law enforcement folks uh, said that they are seeing some changes here. Social media companies are reporting threats. They're, they're kicking people off their sites. Um, they're more willing to meet with law enforcement. And they're even hiring a lot of former law enforcement people to look into this. So they say they are seeing a, a stronger response these days. NPR's Greg Myrie. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ari. Every nigger is a star Every nigger is a star
will deny that you and I and every nigger is a star. A local police officer repeating a racial slur back to a group of African-American men is getting a lot of attention tonight. The Montgomery County Police Department now responding. Montgomery County reporter Kevin Lewis is live at that McDonald's where this video was shot. He has the very latest for us. Kevin. And Michelle, this female officer has been on the force for more than 10 years. She is currently assigned to the patrol division right here in the 3rd District, which covers Silver Spring. Do note we have censored all of the foul language in the video you are about to see. I do. We are friends. We are. We are best friends. 10.30 yesterday morning, Montgomery County Police detained four men outside the McDonald's in White Oak. Minutes later, cops find this baggie of suspected marijuana. You're one angry individual. Some of the men call the officers the N-word and make other crass insults. That's when this female officer repeated one of those slights, N-word included. So if we have more people, y'all been trying to something. If you want to get out of here faster... We have more of our friends to help get out faster. Uh, nope, that's a quote. Those are your words. It's a word that we don't want our officers using at all. Montgomery County Police are owning the officer's error and highlighting their transparency thus far. We want everyone to know we're going to investigate this fully. Uh, this is not something we sat on. We found out yesterday morning and we immediately moved to investigate. Still, harsh critiques by local political leaders, County Executive Mark Elrich. There are no circumstances that justify what the officer said. County Council President Nancy Navarro. It is my expectation that the individuals involved will be held accountable for these offensive actions. Make sure you get my good side. Will the officer be disciplined or fired? So far, no firm comment from police. We don't really have anything more to, to say about that because it's personnel related. And police say this McDonald's generates some of the most calls of any address in the 3rd District, averaging 17 a month, those calls for trespassing, loitering, and drug dealing complaints. We're live in the White Oak section of Silver Spring. I'm Kevin Lewis, ABC 7 News. College don't mean shit. Y'all niggas. And you gonna be niggas forever. Just like us. Niggas. Sit down. No, don't want to hear the word in my office. A parent records their assistant principal inside the school office, and it isn't pretty. Thanks for joining us at five. I'm Chris Lawrence. That recording is full of racial slurs and ultimately cost him his job. WFAA's Alex Rozier is getting the inside story in Denton. In late April, the district started an investigation into assistant principal Howard Palmer. Now Palmer is out of a job. The student's father saying a racist administrator was exposed. In a Denton High School office, a parent confronted now former assistant principal Howard Palmer. Palmer didn't know he was being recorded. I just want to know, did you say it, Mr. Mr. Palmer? Like, yeah, I'll tell you my exact words. Okay. I said, turn the music down. No. I don't want to hear the word in my office. That parent went to the school frustrated, claiming the assistant principal used the N-word when he told two black students to turn their music off. Did you say n music or... Yes, you did. No, excuse yes, me. you did. Hey, I mean, what I told that young man is I don't want to hear the word n and I don't want to hear music with the word n 
Um, well, you shouldn't be like you shouldn't be using that word. If the music was a problem to you, Mr. Palmer, you could have yeah. just had him said, "Hey, turn the music down." Do you think Mr. Palmer's racist? I do think he's racist, and I think a lot of other people think he's racist also. Denton High senior Andy Scott is the student's friend. He says he is satisfied with the outcome. I'm glad that he got fired. I'm glad that he got what he deserved. I think that they should evaluate the entire school staff. I went to Palmer's house today. We asked to hear his side of the story. Is there anything that uh, Howard would like to say uh, to us? I mean, his lawyer, Tiger Hanner, called me back. He said the allegations are not accurate, adding Howard regrets the way he handled the matter, but all he wanted was the music that included the N-word to be turned off. Still, Palmer's time at Denton High is done. I'm blown away right now. You know that there is a principal here that chooses to use that type of language to African-American students. I had the chance to speak with the district. They say anytime allegations like this are brought to their attention, they act swiftly and quickly. Less than two weeks after learning this news, Howard Palmer is out in Denton. I'm Alex Rosier. Why haven't you learned anything? Surveillance video from inside the bus shows several students getting off before Nesbitt closes the bus doors right behind the 14-year-old boy. I couldn't even comprehend how it could happen. Students panic as the bus moves forward for an estimated 20 seconds, dragging the child close to the tires. I was glad he didn't kill him. I was glad he didn't go under the wheels. The boy's mother, Brenda Mays, argues Nesbitt shouldn't have been driving the bus on February 4th. The suit argues the driver had a history of misconduct against children of color dating back to 2017. Something failed. They have a responsibility. When I put my kids, send them off to school, they have a responsibility to make sure they're safe. To prevent getting fired, Nesbitt said he retired three days after the incident. We found him at his home in Hooper. Would you say that you're racist? Not at all. No. Yeah. Look at my dog. He's as black as can be. <laughs> wow! Hey, yo, drama. Hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Just give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Would you say that you're racist? Not at all. No. Yeah. Look at my dog. He's as black as can be. <laughs> Nesbitt says eight buses were lined up behind his when he warned the students he was moving forward. He argues the incident was staged after he disciplined the boy's brother. I didn't see him in there. If I would have done, I would have stopped. In response to the suit, the district said any issues of discrimination are thoroughly investigated. Quote, the Davis School District takes any claims of racial discrimination seriously and does not tolerate any form of racial discrimination in our schools. If they don't tolerate it, why do they tolerate it in this case? And as we record this podcast, in Britain, Queen Elizabeth's grandson, Prince Harry, has announced that his wife, the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan, has given birth to a baby boy. He was born at 5.26 a.m. local time and weighed 3.26 kilos or 7 pounds 3 ounces. The prince said the birth had been an amazing experience. I'm very excited to announce that uh, Meghan and myself had a baby boy um, early this morning, a very healthy boy. Um, mother and baby are doing incredibly well. Um, it's been the most amazing experience I can ever um, possibly imagine. Um, 
how any woman does what they do is beyond comprehension but we're both absolutely thrilled um, and so grateful to all the love and support for everybody out there um, from everybody out there it's been um, it's been amazing so we just wanted to share this with everybody and what about names are you still thinking about names still thinking about names alan um it's uh yeah the baby's a little bit overdue so we've had a little bit of time to think about it but um yeah we're still that's that's the, that's the next bit but for us i think we'll be seeing you guys in probably two days time as planned um as a family to be able to share it with you guys and so everyone can see the baby <laughs> i mean you can't stop smiling it must have been i mean as every birth is, is amazing but for your own child it must be oh. i haven't been at many births um <laughs> this is definitely my first birth uh but it was amazing absolutely incredible and as i said i'm so incredibly proud of my wife as every father and parent would ever say you know your your baby is absolutely amazing but this little thing is 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 absolutely to die for so i'm just over the moon thank you very much guys thank you prince harry the world is still celebrating the news of little archie's birth who's now just four days old the tot was revealed to the world last night and was also pictured here meeting his great granny and grandpa that's Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth II to you. And Meghan's mum, Doria, who's Master Archie's other grandma, was also in the sweet snap. But while most were sharing the happy news, one experienced broadcaster got himself into some hot water with this risque tweet. BBC Radio 5 live host Danny Baker shared this picture of a couple holding hands with a monkey with the words, Royal Baby Leaves Hospital. As expected, the online reaction was immediate with many branding Baker a racist. The host later removed the tweet and apologised, saying, Sorry my gag pick of the little fella in the post outfit has whipped some up. Never occurred to me because, well, mine not disease. No, I had no idea until somebody about it went up about eight minutes. Somebody said, Dan, that's Megan Watson's bike. Oh, oh, down, down, down. But that wasn't enough to save him from losing his job. He then fired back at BBC bosses in another tweet, blasting the way he was sacked. The call to fire me from BBC Five Live was a masterclass of pompous faux gravity. A tone that said, I actually meant that ridiculous tweet and the BBC must uphold, blah, blah, blah. Literally threw me under the bus. Could hear the suit's knees knocking. So our new mum, Megs, gets settled into life with a bug. Daddy Harry is heading back to work. He flew over to Holland earlier today for an event which is close to his heart the Invictus Games. Today marks the one-year countdown to the 2020 Games, which are being held in the Netherlands. Harry first launched the game back in 2014 as an opportunity for wounded soldiers from around the globe to participate in a mass sporting event. And the Games hold a personal flame for the Prince because it's where he and Meghan first went public with their relationship back in Toronto in 2017. Finally, there's been lots of talk on how unconventional Archie's birth announcement was. Megs and Harry broke tradition in many ways by not debuting their baby in front of the Lindo Wing of London St Mary's Hospital. As we all know, Princess Diana was the first to walk through those doors to the world's press. Here she is with William in June 1982. And two years later, she was back with newborn Harry in 1984. And of course, we all remember the images of Will and Kate on those famous steps, not once, not twice, but three times, with George, Charlotte and little Louis. John Singleton, 1968-2019. John Singleton, 
the well-known writer and filmmaker who directed the film Boys in the Hood, 1991, was a master of his craft. Boys in the Hood, nominated for an Oscar, gave a sympathetic portrayal of working-class black life. It showed how gang culture had permeated urban spaces. On April 17th, Singleton, recently returned from Costa Rica, reported feeling ill and checked into a local hospital. According to his family, the director had suffered a mild stroke. Days later, Singleton experienced a coma. And several weeks thereafter, the 51-year-old filmmaker was gone. In Boys in the Hood, Singleton presented characters who voiced black concerns. Consider the following dialogue from a character named Furious. Well, how do you think the crack rock got into the country? We didn't own any planes. We don't own any ships. We're not the people who are flying and floating that blank into here. I know every time you turn on a TV, that's what you see. Black people selling the rock, pushing the rock. Yeah, I know. But that wasn't a problem until it was in Iowa and started up on Wall Street where there are hardly any black people. Dialogue from John Singleton's Boys in the Hood, 1991. John Singleton has returned to his ancestors. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, May 11th, 2019. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, counter-racist suggestions, questions, other contributions you would like to make. Uh, the number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943. Pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one. If you would like to participate.
it's been a little over a week since Mr. Singleton passed, and that's something that has uh, been significant uh, that I've noted just when the numerous people that I've heard uh, talking about him, different reports and all the rest of it, the bulk of the focus in terms of his film work is on Boys in the Hood, and I mean, I guess that's the most popular film that he did, Mr. Singleton, but he was doing films and television projects, you know, right? It's not like he stopped making films in the 20th century. Um, beyond the fact that I think people should be discussing Rosewood, uh, but I think Higher Learning had a few thoughts about racism, white supremacy, and uh, Baby Boy. I mean, hey, let's get Dr. Welsing in there. Uh, I, if folks have uh, heard some of his other works being cited, and how they also examine white supremacy racism, that would be spectacular. But I am, I won't say saddened, but I mean, if it was any any artist, if it was anybody, uh, if it was Pamela Evans Harris, we didn't just say, oh yeah, she wrote, you know, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, which she did. But I mean, yeah, she wrote quite a few other books. Same thing with anyone else. We were talking about Michael Jackson. It wouldn't just be, oh yeah, you know, did Off the Wall among many, many, many other titles that also address racism, white supremacy, which is why I think that is especially important uh, with Mr. Singleton, because if people are pointing out boys in the hood for racism, my goodness, he addressed many other aspects of white supremacy racism other than just black on black crime. A few other announcements before we get to the callers. I was speaking with my prenatal yoga instructor this week, and she said she had a class of pregnant moms, and she said there was a black female present. I said, wow, that's amazing, because I didn't see any pregnant black females at any of the classes, daily classes that I participated in for almost a month during prenatal training. And she says, uh, this pregnant black mom is there. I don't remember which trimester she's in. And she says she's really afraid of having a hospital birth uh, because she doesn't feel like she'll get adequate care. The coon man, why would she? She doesn't think she'll get adequate care and she wants to do a home birth. And I'm thinking, hey, bravo. That is right on. My prenatal uh, instructor, white woman, uh, she is all about home births uh, and has participated in them, all of that. I think she even had one. Uh, I have been at a home birth uh, for a black mom, even broadcasted a program uh, from the birthing center. Uh, so I certainly uh, am an advocate that that can be done safely. Uh, if the mom is healthy, uh, you can do your research about that. It absolutely can be done uh, in an extremely safe manner uh, that will be probably better than having the coon man uh, dope you up, literally, uh, and be really callous uh, and, you know, doing whatever else uh, to you and your child. Uh, and it could even be uh, the spouse as well, the child's father, your partner, all of that. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of better alternatives uh, that are healthy, safe, uh, and might even be a much better experience for everyone involved not being at the hospital. Anyway, so she says that's what this black mom says, but her partner 
does not think a home birth would be safe. Uh, thinks that she would be better going to the coon man, going to the hospital. And I said, oh, man, that's, you know, that's terrible. I said, you know, there's a lot of literature out there. They have documentaries and books and, you know, all kinds of information. Certainly you can go online uh, and research. You all can sit down and, and come to an informed opinion. Uh, and I said, in fact, uh, I was at one of these natural births. Uh, I said he should talk to her. Uh, she could give him all kinds of information. And uh, she said, no. Her partner should talk to you. That's why you are a certified prenatal instructor. I said, wow, I wish Gus was here. I thought that was important. Uh, I always take reminders uh, to make sure that I am teaching. That is an important aspect of counter racism, taking better care of ourselves, uh, And yoga can be a big aspect of that as with eating correctly plant-based meals, very important as well. Uh, but <clears throat> more to come on that. Uh, in a very related note, uh, our counter-racist 10-year anniversary Cow's Yoga Retreat, attempting number two for Labor Day weekend, Southern California, Lake Arrowhead. This is the same location that we were looking at uh, for July. If you are interested, it would be August 29 through September 1. That's August 29th, Thursday through September 1, Sunday, Labor Day weekend, four days, three nights, plant-based meals the entire time. Uh, Chef Nadira, she did a phenomenal job, and I think that might even be an understatement. Uh, cooking for us in Virginia, uh, there was unanimous appreciation uh, for her meals. Uh, she gave out some of the recipes. She's already agreed to come hang out with us for Labor Day weekend. Uh, again, August 29 through September 1. She would be willing to hang out. Uh, the total price, $775. That would be broken up two payments, one payment of 400, one payment of 375. The first payment, I'd said we were going to do the end of uh, May, but I'm going to do an extra week just because it's been a really tough spring for me with the mistreatment at the yoga studio and relocation. It has been lots of anxiety. So I'm giving everyone an extra week. So that would be uh, the end of the first week in June for the first partial payment, first deposit, if you will. And then the final portion, 375, that would be uh, the first week of August. If you are interested, and that would be including the stay, we're doing yoga twice a day for the duration that we're there. All meals included. We'll all have beds. There should be no mud. Uh, again, Labor Day weekend, August 29 through September 1. Drop an email if you are interested until justice at gmail.com. Uh, also, I'm just saying this out loud. I think I recommended that to a cow's listener. Uh, things that are constructive, uh, maybe ideas that you are thinking about, a new concept that you're thinking about. Sometimes it can help to verbalize what that is, if it's constructive, words are important. That's why I think 
Uh, many folks uh, discourage, including Gus T, discourage saying things that are not constructive or just talking uh, in a non-constructive manner about other people. That is powerful, too. Uh, but things that are constructive that you're thinking about verbalize. So people have been asking me about videos to watch to do yoga. They don't want to go to the studio and be terrorized. I totally feel you. So they've been asking about videos that they could watch. And the thing is, I've been going to the studio for, you know, almost a year now, over a year now. Um, so I, that's not really something that I've done. And at this point, if I did watch uh, videos, I probably wouldn't be looking at the video. I would just be listening to the cues because I practice so much and I'm an instructor that I don't really need to see uh, anybody doing the postures. Uh, I can just listen to the cues. I can listen. I know the names, the Sanskrit and all that stuff. So I don't really, I'm not really paying attention as much and I don't really follow all of their directions. I'm an instructor because I'm an instructor. That is something I could do. I think a listener had suggested that before uh, that, hey, people could just do the video conference and you could teach that way. Lots of people do yoga instructing that way. So that is something I am considering. I have to give it a little bit more thought. I will update. Uh, other items. Uh, we are listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, you can visit my blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. When you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, drop me an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Since I returned to the flood uh, residence, if you were using the temporary address uh, for the last 17 months, drop an email so that you can get the updated mailing address. Uh, huge thanks to all of the folks who have invested and been patient over the last 17 months with the flood and all of that. Uh, I hope the program, the cows, has been, continues to be worthy of your time, energy, currency, life currency, as Dr. Kambon says, kamalkambon.org. In addition to PayPal, all of the above, you can visit the Amazon wishlist. It is listed under Gus T. Renegade. Much obliged to all the folks who have nabbed items from that wish list, uh, which is also listed on my blog right underneath the PayPal button. Uh, again, tremendous gratitude to all the folks who have nabbed items. I uh, hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. A uh, few things that I wanted to say about the segments. Wow, I had to take... I had to take notes. I'll start. <clears throat> they say this is supposed to be Mother's Day tomorrow, at least this weekend, or I guess Sunday at a minimum. Uh, and they do a lot of tacky, lots of chocolate. Uh, Wellsing moment for uh, Mother's Day. But the segment where they released the cell phone video uh, of the victim of white supremacy, victim of white terrorism, Sandra Bland, uh, talk about domestic terrorism. Uh, I thought that was, I think I've mentioned this repeatedly. Maybe I need to get a term. 
victim in Florida is very good at that. There needs to be a term for this. Uh, where racists, they will frequently, it'll be video footage, but it could be any bit of truthful information. This is, in my view, this is another form of deception uh, and just holding information and waiting. Now, Sandra Bland, wasn't that, that was uh, 2015. I'm a victim. My memory might be bad, but I think that was 2015. To wait four years to, oh, this uh, camera footage that we had, that's what they said, that they they had already reviewed this as a part of their investigation uh, when they, you know, decided what charges that they were going to make against the race soldier. Uh, so this is not new information, but they'll wait four years. They could have released this back then. Why not? They could have released it in 2016. Why not? 2017. Why not? You'll wait and release it now. And man, that's why I said it's a real tacky element. Uh, is the why is this some concern? I don't think so at all. This is just re-traumatize the family, re-traumatize black people. Oh yeah, remember how we killed that nigger and didn't even charge anyone? Ah, put that new footage out. They do this sort of thing all the time. It is not about justice. It's another form of tacky white terrorism. Unless I'm in error, if anyone listening has a different opinion or does not see where that's logical, please speak up. Next. the parents who went to the school they spoke with the assistant principal was a white male <clears throat> he had been accused of telling I don't know if it was their child or just some black students period but telling them to turn the nigger music off I should have put the nigger back in I normally do that they had their recording device. We talk on workplace races. I generally include that in every description uh, that I do think that that is something that is very uh, important in terms of people that have a counter racist code that involves recording devices, because I think they can be such powerful tools, certainly know what the laws are. Uh, about recording if it's a phone conversation or an in-person conversation know what the laws are for your locale your part of the world uh, so that it does not cause more problems for you but wow uh, it can be such a powerful tool uh, to have now we don't have a dispute about what was said now we have an actual record this is what you said uh, but I had never thought about that in the context of going to speak, going to the school to speak with a teacher or administrator uh, about a situation and having a recording there. I'm not a parent, so obviously that's nothing, <laughs> something that I would think about immediately. But wow, we do talk to a lot of parents and I don't think I've heard that before uh, suggested. But wow, that folks who are parents out there, that is definitely something to consider having a recording device ready. If you're going to talk to someone at the school or what have you, just in case, you know, they're practicing racism or to ward off there being a dispute where they say something and then they come back a day later or maybe five minutes later and oh I didn't say that and I, you must there must have been some sort of miscommunication uh, next the segment where the race soldier in Utah closed the doors on the non-white child uh, quote unquote biracial uh, that is a term that is suggested that we not use uh, Mr. Fuller's word guide non-white child with a white parent closed the door on him and dragged him uh, James Byrd Jr. Jasper Texas they just executed one of the uh, 
one of his murderers, uh, but dragged him. I think they said about 100 feet or so. It's about a half a football field, if I remember correctly, a substantial distance. Dragged him. And then he had a record of uh, racist conduct. Again, I've talked, I've talked about how discretion, I think many whites uh, for jobs, they are not doing criminal background checks on white people for a lot of jobs, particularly jobs where there's some leeway, uh, where you don't have to go through some sort of federal filing system or what have you. Uh, or even then, I suspect they're probably uh, racist loopholes, but racist ways for them to subvert what the policy and procedure is supposed to be. Uh, but this driver with his record, they said, of abusing non-white students, I wish they had given explicit details. What exactly has he done? Has he dragged other non-white students? Has he called them a coon? What is it exactly? And what is it that he did that it was deemed, yeah, maybe he called them a coon, but you can still drive the bus. That's okay. Maybe he only dragged him 20 feet, but eh, that's all right. He lived. Okay. That's all right. You can still drive them. But like, yeah, to have multiple incidents uh, where you're accused of practicing racism against children. And it's cool. You can still drive the bus. Then when they actually go to his house, which is rare, most of the time when they do these type of segments and they go to the suspected racists residence, no one answers or they don't want to be on camera. Race soldier answers. Opens the door. Are you a racist? <laughs> he says, no, look at my dog. <laughs> Trouble behind. If you have seen that doc or if you haven't seen, it's about Corbin, Texas. But the, I play the sound clip on the program all the time. I was going to play it there. But I mean, how many sound clips can you play? Uh, Trouble behind. It's online. I think I posted it maybe within the last two weeks because it's related to what we're talking about in sundown towns. But that is exactly like two the white man in trouble behind he said uh, my dog i love that dog he was strong and black and muscular nigger come on <laughs> but that he didn't say his dog's name was nigger but he's got a black dog so of course i can't be racist what are you talking about i just shut that niggers or biracial coon in the in the door and he lived it's all good and he resigned he didn't even get fired he didn't even get fired he resigned white people are not fired they get transferred might be driving a bus somewhere else in utah uh the segment if i can go back the segment also with sandra bland that's i have said all of those where whites uh white journalists uh go out and interview uh, a black victim uh and tell us how sad you are and all of that <clears throat> necrophilia i think that's another form of uh consumption delectable negro necrophilia uh but asking black people do you think that this person is racist i th in my view that is an act of racism i think a lot of times white people do that to get a black person in trouble uh they know frequently non-white people you get in trouble uh going off and saying that oh yeah this white person is a racist i have seen i have seen that myself where victims have got in trouble uh, for calling a white person a racist. I think there's a reason Mr. Fuller suggests don't just be reckless uh, with labeling whites as racist, suspected racist. That's why on this program I ask when I get a white person to confess, admitted racist, to make it explicit that I'm not just saying this recklessly, that this person confessed to being a racist. 
white supremacists. Anytime that whites are going out and doing it, do you think that this person is racist? The code should be suspected, ra- or you can come up with your own code. Any answer other than, oh yeah, I think Donald is a racist. Anything other than that. And following with a question, a white person asks you that immediately, whatever your codified response is, are you a white person? Do you think such and such is a racist? And see what they say. And they'll probably, you know, oh, I don't know. I just came to, I don't even know. How do you spell racist? Next. Uh, the I mentioned uh, sundown towns. I think I mentioned it uh, during the book study yesterday. I am certain reading is more important than watching television. I'm sure some folks uh, that listen to this, the compensatory call-in, don't participate in the book club. Wow. Even if you are not listening, uh, Sundown Towns, it has so much information. Even though the author is a suspected racist, uh, and in my view, he practices racism in a variety of ways throughout the text. All of that said, the book does have a lot of constructive information about white supremacy. So much so, it mentions uh, Oklahoma repeatedly it mentions it so many times and it mentions mr the town where mr fuller was born explicitly so i called him uh and i read some of the uh, sections to him and he seemed very intrigued about it he had heard about the book before even though he had not read it uh and he said he was he seemed so uh excited i don't think that would be incorrect uh excited about you know what it was saying about Oklahoma. And he confirmed pretty much everything that uh, James Lowen was saying in the book about black people being terrorized on the train and all these other acts. Uh, Mr. Fuller confirmed all of this. Anyway, he was so intrigued, excited about the book uh, that he said he wanted to read it. I said, I would be you know, happy to send you a copy. So I did. And hopefully he'll have it within a day or so if he doesn't have it already. Uh, I would encourage, especially the people that are participating in the book club, uh, if you get an opportunity, you call in, talk Taman, you call him specifically, ask a question or what have you, either or, uh, or you hear him on, you know, W-L- W-O-L, whatever it is, I would say maybe wait a month or so, right? It's a bigger book. So, and he, you know, has other things to do, but maybe wait a month, maybe two, maybe sometime middle of the summer, see if he's had an opportunity to read any of it and see what does he think about some of the portions it mentions about Oklahoma or other areas? Uh, and and not just with Mr. Mr. Fuller, I think you could probably have a similar experience uh, to what I had, meaning just a really enjoyable, constructive dialogue talking to older black people with some of the like, if you know, older black people, Oklahoma, uh, what, he mentions almost every state, Illinois. Pennsylvania, Texas, wherever, uh, if you know black people, yeah, if you know older black people, ask them, you know, oh, you lived in Michigan, Dearborn, he mentions there specifically, oh, you've lived in this area for, you know, 50 years, 60 years, wow, do you remember such and such, do you know about this book, can I read you maybe a paragraph just about what it says about this location, and see what they say, I bet you could get some amazing stories, if your parents are older, if you have grandparents, if you are fortunate to have grandparents who are older uh, that you can speak with, aunts, uncles, neighbors, whatever it is, Uh, if you have access to older black people, sundown towns might be a very useful tool in getting them to speak about some of their memories 
experiences with racism, white supremacy. Uh, it was it was a hoot <laughs> reading some of those portions with Mr. Fuller. Uh, let's see. I have one more. I will get to the callers. Let's see. I will get to the callers, although I guess I'm getting in one more. The segment about the dollar stores at the beginning, I did think was very important. Uh, the cushy hipster temporary flood residents that I was hanging out at for 17 months, they did not have any dollar stores in that area. Like it would, I would have to go and do some searching to locate a dollar store. They did not have any. They had grocery stores, co-ops, fresh organic produce, farmers markets. That's what they had in great abundance in walking distance, easily accessible. <laughs> That's what they had. They don't have any dollar stores here where I am now either, just, you know, for emphasis. Uh, but that is so important and strategic uh, to have so many dollar stores that in what they call food deserts, metaphor, uh, that you have so many dollar stores that have saturated the area that it's not even profitable to have a grocery store where you might get something other than Twinkies and nonsense that will... John Singleton, 51. Before we get to the callers, this is the compensatory call-in, so no metaphors. Now, they highlighted a metaphor specifically when talking about how they discuss what they call mass incarceration and racism, white supremacy. They said that a bicycle is uh, assembled, designed to function as a system to do something. Now, that is interesting quite a metaphor. I don't know if that is a metaphor that I would use to describe the system of racism, white supremacy, because uh, that leaves out white people. And I think that is a problem with many of the metaphors that are used to describe racism, white supremacy, that there are white people who put that bike together for this specific purpose. That's how this system was put together by white people, racist man, racist woman, racist child, individuals classified as white. This was deliberately designed to do this, to do Sandra Bland, Mumia Abu-Jamal, John Singleton, dead at 51. Dollar stores saturated an area where we have no grocery stores that it just happens to be a high percentage of dark people who live. All of these are deliberate acts of racism, white supremacy by individuals classified as white. That is, in my view, a bet. That's not a bicycle. Those are two different things. But again, that's why I said metaphors should be examined closely. That's why I recommend on this broadcast, let's not use those metaphors at all. If we're talking about racism, we're not talking about bicycles. Let's be specific to what we are discussing. Race soldiers, they deliberately, a lot of times, they will use those metaphors, analogies, similes, comparisons to be deceptive, to practice white supremacy. Victims, we've been exposed to that conduct for centuries. And many of us, Gusty included, we are still learning. So sometimes we don't have logic to articulate our thoughts. We'll substitute and use an analogy, metaphor of some sort. And frequently there's, that just creates a lot more confusion for this broadcast. If we could be direct to what it is we want to say that would be super appreciated. I will prompt about the metaphors. Uh, the number again, 
564 the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, Gus. I'm, I called you probably a few weeks back. Is this a segment of the show? And if I, I might be mistaken. This is a segment where you can, um, you know, kind of provide like updates on workplace situations or is um, this a different segment? This actually is a different segment. However, I never turn down workplace racism uh, updates or requests for suggestion. That is always uh, acceptable uh, to discuss, even though workplace racism technically is Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. But yes, ma'am, proceed. Okay, thank you. Well, I was the one I emailed you about three weeks back, and I had contacted you about... um, you know, being called in the office a few days before probation um, was about to be over due to my quietness. And sometimes after that, um, I noticed, you know, they started kind of like picking on me about like little things and, you know, trying to get like a, an emotional reaction. And I've been listening to your program and I heard about using, um, you know, certain, um, uh, I think you had mentioned or another caller had mentioned about using like ADA to be able to kind of navigate the workspace. And I did that. And ultimately, um, uh, I wish I had, you know, something positive to say. I did use the ADA and um, made some, you know, requests for accommodations, which my workplace denied my request saying that they would be too burdensome. So ultimately, it's going to re- result in me getting a, um, I'll be transferred out of the department um, but how it was presented to me is that um, I, th- they were going to give me an opportunity to apply for other jobs within the organization, but these, all these jobs were ba- practically demotions. So I'm kind of I don't I don't know how to really handle it. I just I guess I just have to do what I have to do. But it, you know, it just really gets. Um, you know, I, I know I need to expect mistreatment because we are living in a system of this is, um, you know, it's white, white supremacy, but it's just so hard to stay, you know, upbeat and to stay, you know, positive and focused whenever, you know, I've worked, worked in this organization for so long. And now, you know, I'm basically going to be demoted. I'll be moved out of the position, but uh, there is a high likelihood that I'm going to, um, you know, my pay is, you know, probably going to be reduced. So I just kind of wanted to update you on that. Um, you know, use the ADA law can, you know, work in, work in your favor, you know, if your workplace can give you accommodations. But in my particular case, uh, you know, they argued that it would be too costly, which I, you know, I don't feel that was accurate. 
And, you know, one of the accommodations under the um, American, American Disability Act is reassignment to a new position. But all of the positions, you know, that they offer to me, you know, were all lower level or practically demotion. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to, you know, update you on that. It's not a happy story and kind of ruins my weekend again. But, um, you know, I do appreciate, you know, the information that you guys give. And, you you know, you always seem like you're so very, you know, positive and, you know, you never let it get to you. But it's just really... Um, you know, depressing, you know, navigating, you know, this, the world that we live in. Well, thank you for uh, sharing. And uh, it certainly does uh, get to Gus. That is why uh, I have been doing so much yoga to help deal with the stress. Uh, And I am not aware of uh, any non-white person uh, that this does not bother I mean, it's, I don't know how it would not uh, at some point. The best you can do is just try to manage as best you can. Um, With your situation specifically, you said that they were the initial, I guess, report about your, what was lacking about your workplace output was you were too quiet. And you said that they were picking at you about small things. Uh, What was the, go ahead. Oh, yes, yes. Initially, um, the report, the, what I was called in the office for was just due to kind of being too quiet and, you know, not being, um, I guess, collaborative enough. But shortly after that, you know, they started picking, you know, finding like minute things, you know, in my, in my work or always um, everything that I did in the office, um, regardless of what it was, it, it was never right or I was always like left left out of different things. For example, um, a colleague, you know, um, and something would, like, for example, like administrative tasks, they would, um, I don't want to be too specific, um, but, um, you know, like coworkers would go to my boss about a task that I didn't know that I was supposed to be doing and complain to my bo- boss about it. And then my boss would come to me and she said, you know, we expect you to do everything. We expect you to do this. So the entire expectation of the job changed, things that I didn't know that would have been a big deal. And just to give you an example, just changing, you know, um, copy paper out out of the uh, copy machine. And that's very minuscule. It's not a big thing. But, um, you know, a coworker went and said, well, you know, when I was in the position, you know, I had to do such and such. And then, you know, my boss kind of got on to me about that. So from that point on, which I figured – I had assumed that three-month probationary period was just to kind of, you know, um, kind of just find error in everything that that I did. And that's kind of pretty much what they did, and I sensed that, and that's why I, you know, try to utilize the um, ADA law because I I do, you know, have a a disability that predates it, but it became um, worse in that particular department. So, um, you know, there's another person of color that I work with and, you know, she was telling me, you know, that, you, you know, she started noticing things as well. And she said, you know, you just have to, you're going to have to change, um, your whole per your, your entire, you know, personality. And she said, I don't like to, you know, deal with the, the, these people, you know, either, but this is just part, part of it. But at the same time, this, 
the same colleague, you know, she's always, you know, she has like really high blood pressure. She's always stressed. And for me, that just, I couldn't deal with that. So on one end, it's kind of like the being out of that environment is good, but it's like racism, white supremacy affects pretty much everywhere you go. So I just don't feel that there really is a, you know, you're not going to be in a utopian, you know, department, but that demotion kind of um, put the icing, you know, on the cake. So it's just, it's just really, it's a very unfortunate situation. You know, you work hard and, you know, just like that, um, you know, it can be, you know, taken from you for, for any reason, you know, things that were um, okay at one point are now, you know, it's not okay. And so it, it was, it was just a really horrible, horrible situation. And I'm doing my best to cope with it because with a lot of it, it's a lot of shame from going to, you know, one level to, you know, being kicked back down two or three levels. It's just, you know, it's going to be pretty big impact on, you know, my self-esteem. It already is. So I just want to just kind of call you with the update. And I don't know if people have any, really any suggestions at this point because it's um, pretty much at the point of stay in the organization and, you know, just deal with the demotion or, you know, just leave. I, and if I leave, who's to say something similar won't happen in another work environment? Hmm. Well, uh, thank you for sharing. And people that are listening in can certainly give updates. Uh, I guess the, uh, the things I'll say uh, before seeing if other folks have input or their own uh, topics to discuss. Um, I do say no metaphors on this broadcast. Uh, you said icing on the cake, uh, and kick oh, back down sorry. to describe your demotion. No need for apologies. I, they, uh, are worthy of inspection, uh, kicked back down. That's, you know, an act of violence, uh, which is generally the way that we describe, uh, workplace racism, the environment, uh, a terroristic environment, a violent uh, environment. And that's the metaphor that was invoked about what's happening here. Um, I talked about, and we talk about regularly black mental health and the damage that happens to a lot of black people in these types of environments where you can be doing, you know, superb work, flawless work, and you'll just be critiqued and they'll come out. Oh, you didn't put the copier in the tray. You forgot to refill the toilet paper in the restroom. You forgot to put paper towels back in the kitchen. Like, well, wait a minute. Is this even my, am I supposed to even be doing this? Yes. The last person did it. And even if you didn't know you're supposed to do it, you should have volunteered to do it anyway. So that's, we'll add that to the list. I mean, that is standard. Uh, so many black people have experienced that where they just make up a new criterion uh, to critique you uh, in an adverse manner uh, to show that you're failing in various duties on your job. Uh, I think it's important. I think we talked about this yesterday with Thomas in New York. I think sometimes it's important to recognize uh, in a work environment like, oh, wow, this has become exceedingly toxic, uh, seeming even to the point like they might not want me to be here. Because uh, that's sounding like what this might be, um, that we just, right. you know, have decided that we're done with you. Uh, we're just going to make make up any random reason uh, that we can critique you so that we'll have grounds to say, oh, yeah, she's just not 
doing an adequate job. So we'll have to get her some lesser responsibilities here um, that that's standard. Um, and I, I think it's important because Stacy in the UK, who was with us yesterday, she said previously that similar uh, abuses were happening to her in a work situation and it impacted her self-esteem. I had her where she wasn't confident and felt like, oh, wow, I'm not, I'm not an adequate employee and I'm not doing great work and who's going to want to hire me. That's the exact impact that it had on her. And I am certain that that is the case for probably millions of black people, millions of non-white people worldwide. That is, that's all by design. Going back to what is the system of white supremacy designed to produce situations like this? That is exactly what it's designed to produce. Pam talked about that in uh, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. Um, I, w- I will only say in terms of protecting self-esteem as much as possible, that's why we do talk about expecting these type of things to happen, being prepared for any sort of abuse. You try to do the best you can, but it is a system of racism. You can do everything perfectly and this sort of thing can still happen. That's racism. Uh, financially, being very frugal uh, because not expecting. It's not set up for Black people to have spectacular jobs and a fantastic workspace and a fantastic salary is not designed for black people to have that at all so be extremely frugal with the expectation they might come in tomorrow they can show you better than i can tell you this is their desk their office their computer their job and they're taking all of it back used to be mine they told me and now it's all theirs again so just being mindful yeah, you're of that. very correct on that and I, I've been especially careful, you know, not to, you know, accumulate debt, you know, and a lot of people are, um, people want to, you know, you know, climb, I don't want to say climb the ladder because that's a, um, the euphemism, but I've been very careful, like in Mr. Fuller's, um, in the textbook to just, you know, I, I do have, you know, a bit of an excess of, of things, but I've, I'm starting to, you know, not accumulate as much and to, I've always been very frugal with, with my finances. And in an instance, if I were to be, you know, terminated or unemployed, you know, I, every time each raise that I've received, I didn't up my living standards. I kind of kept them at the same and always kept saving. So in that area, you know, I'm, I'm blessed, but it's just, you know, like you said, it's hard to maintain a healthy, um, you know, self-esteem and, and be positive and be happy because, you know, I, I was told by this, um, another non-white person in the office that I'm too confident that I ask too many questions and that that's dangerous. And I see now <laughs> that it wasn't. Oh, hello. Are you still with us? Hmm. Not sure if she got disconnected or brushed her. Oh, mute. Hello. Oh, okay. Yes, we can hear you. Hello. Yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I was just. I, I guess the, something happened with my phone. But yes, I was just, you know, saying that black part that another non-white person just told me that, you know. And, you know, I know with Mr. Fuller, you know, in the text, that you ask questions, that's how you learn. You want to ask questions. And, you know, she was saying because I, you know, came off as too confident and because I asked 
too many questions, but that was a dangerous um, combination. So, you know, I, some things you know, don't work out and they, you know, they just don't work out for, you know, whatever reason, you know. But, I, you know, I just wanted to call with the update and just kind of let people know what went on. And I'm just trying to keep that black self-esteem and, and stay positive and, and move forward. Right on. Thank you for the update. Uh, if any listeners uh, have any suggestions uh, for our female caller, you can add those as we proceed. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Yes, ma'am. Greetings, Ness, and greetings to all the callers on the line. Um, Ari uh, spoke about some health issues that she's dealing with. I hope that she's feeling better and that she recovers uh, quickly, and I hope that something also gets resolved with the the last caller who um, just spoke. Um, I'm going to keep saying this. White people have the high blood pressure more than anybody. Um, it's killing 22,000 of them, only 5,700 of us um, by comparison. And it's like Dr. Mutegi said, who is a two-time guest on this, on this program, if these, if these diseases like high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, heart disease, whatever, are affecting white people the way that they are, why are they being promoted as black diseases? I think um, Boys in the Hood by... Um, by uh, John Singleton. I think that, um, yes, that movie is, is popular, but from my observation, it's popular for like, in my, at least in my view, um, the wrong reasons. I think that the, the constructive nature of that, of that movie, um, is very, um, I think it, it went unnoticed, um, a lot. Um, I think that there was, you know, a, of course, a lot of, um, black people killing each other, but the way that he, the way that he, um, the way that he made the movie is that he really made it where you could learn a lot from that and you could learn a lot about the consequences of that. And of course you've seen, um, you know, movies with similar content, but they, they to me were just very, very tacky and there was just no, no, no learning, um, in that. And I think that toward the end, I mean, you, you got used to the characters and when they, you know, passed away, I think that the way that he, the way that he made the movie, you, you, you felt just really bad, and you, you could. It was. I thought it was thought provoking the way that he made that film. Um, higher learning, I thought, was awful, and I don't think that that was Mr. Singleton's fault at all. I think that, you know, he had the race soldier who killed Tyra Banks. He had her. He had him playing someone who just did that just because other people told him to do it, and that he just was so sorry for what he did and all of that. And it's like, no, that's not how um, race soldiers are. It's like, I don't understand what is constructive about that movie at all, except for black people going to college. And if black people are going to college, what difference does it make if it's under these type of circumstances? And Ice Cube played a dumb person where he was like in college like six times 
he was like um, staying in the same grade for like six times. Like he was supposed to have been had graduated and he um, graduated so late. And then Omar Epps, he was so dumb in the movie that he couldn't even write a paper. I mean, he couldn't write it at all. Like everything that he did in trying to write this paper was, was awful. And it was just all of these errors and Tyra Banks, the woman was the smart one instead of the, instead of the, the man, it was like the, the black male or the black man. He was, he was stupid and she was the smart one and he needed her to help him. It's like what, what he was, he was basically a dumb athlete. And that's what he said in the movie. He said, I'm not no dumb athlete. And that's ultimately what he played. So it's like, it doesn't make any difference if, if black people are in college, if it's going to be under these, um, type of circumstances and um I'm almost done as far as Rosewood I think that movie was constructive but I like the the white savior stuff and I like how the little race soldier who's like 10 or however old he was he was uh he resented his father for teaching him how to make a noose and for um being a racist and that's not how white children are they're racist as well and I didn't like how they played it how they how it was made where um the father was teaching him how to be a racist when mainly it's women, white women who are teaching their children how to be racist. They are the ones who are with them um, for the most part. And I think that that, I, I didn't like that about it. And I don't think really that that was John Singleton's fault either. I think a lot of the certain things like that, those types of little deep, those types of details are because of white people. Uh, two quick things I wanted to say is that coon, as I said before, it means nigger. So black people should never use that term. It means that black people um, that their that their eyes are ugly, that that they are. It, it's about our skin color because our skin color is um, because our skin color is dark. It's saying that we look like raccoons. So black people shouldn't um, shouldn't um, shouldn't use that term. Um, I had other things I wanted to share, but I'll 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 wait and see if there's time later. But thanks everyone. Thanks Gus. I'm at my line. Much obliged, Ivy. I think, or it's not, I think uh, Mr. Singleton did do an interview where he talked about the uh, white savior character in Rosewood. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we have missed totally, if you have a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, Draftomania. Uh, greetings, guests and callers. Um, I wanted to comment on the audio about uh, Sandra Bland. Uh, I agree with you. Um, they waited until now to bring out this information about her um, her murder, the information that they had uh, already had years ago. And I agree with you. Um, I think it is tacky. Um, it's right around Mother's Day. And it's just, to me, it's like they're just re-traumatizing the family all over again. Um, I wanted to uh, give you, um, the, you and the guests, um, an update on um, my situation with my terrorist stalker. Um, I had to end up calling the cops Wednesday night um, about 12 o'clock. When I got home from work, um, I entered my room. Um, I did go ahead and um, purchase some 
what do you call uh, uh, some surveillance, um, you know, application where I could record and download, you know, pictures and, you know, take uh, uh, surveillance of what's going on outside of, you know, my perimeter. Um, it's kind of hard for me to, um, like, really um, install anything um, because I don't own this property. So I'm doing it to the best of my ability. So um, anyway, I had to en end up calling uh, the cops because uh, the terrorist um, stalker, um, white supremacist suspect, um, was, um, you know, trolling the area again. Um, I called, and um, when I spoke to the cops, um, you know, they did have a record um, of the situation, um, but it was, I felt like, they didn't respond immediately. Um, I had to basically tell the officer to have, you know, um, uh, the police to come out and just, you know, surveil the area to try to see if they see this guy, you know, um, in the area. Um, but yeah, that's um, what I had to end up doing. Um, it. I felt like it was, um, I know that it's safety, but it kind of put me in the mind of what you say, Gus, about how they love to waste our time and our energy. You know, um, I have a routine that I've been trying to implement. Um, I'm trying to get back into yoga also, but what I've been doing because of my schedule, I've been trying to commit um, to maybe doing like 10 minutes every single night before I go to bed. So, you know, it cut into, um, it just made um, my night, um, I ended up having to go to bed maybe two hours later than what I would usually go because I had to deal with that situation. So, but I am trying to implement, um, you know, things to try to take care of myself because, I had noticed that my with my health, um, I was uh, suffering from back pains and all these different aches and pains, and I honestly uh, attribute that to um, the stress of the constant stress. Um, that I've been dealing with on a constant basis, and just you know, um. I, I go through these bouts of just feeling stressed out and, uh, you know, I can go into like um, just feeling depressed and maybe just cry or, you know, because it's just a buildup of all this stuff that I'm constantly dealing with on a daily basis. But um, um, I think... Um, I thank goodness that this show, um, we have this show because I know that I'm not alone. Um, I know that there's other people that's going through the same thing that I'm going through. And at least I can talk to um, or talk about it on this program. And I know that um, others will, you know, be able to identify with what I'm talking about. And I just want to say one other thing. I just got finished listening to um, your archive with um, about the Dozer School and um, Johnny Lee uh, Gaddy, and he made a reference in regards 
to um, when he tried to talk about um, all of the uh, abuse that he went through while he was in the school and how he met, he didn't get support from his family and nobody understood him and nobody supported him and they um, did a little him and ridiculed him until all of this stuff came out. Um, so, I mean, it is important for us to have um, a format like this to be able to talk about, um, you know, this stress that we go through um, on a daily basis um, because we are being uh, terrorized by the system of white supremacy. And thank you for all of your efforts and thank you for, um, you know, to all the callers um, because I get a lot out of this show. And that's all I have to share. Thank you. Much obliged, Draftomania. Uh, I'm sorry you've continued to have to deal with the terrorism at your uh, residence, uh, but I'm hoping the having the surveillance uh, system uh, working and I'm glad to hear just continue. Uh, I would have the number for the enforcement officers on speed dial so that you can contact report, you know, every time so that there's a record uh, when there's an incident uh, and, and being diligent. I would be alerting the, the neighbors too, so that they know uh, keeping them abreast as best you can. Uh, just everything that you can do to uh, take precautions. White people are dangerous. Take your safety, your life very, very seriously. Uh, the number again, uh, folks have suggestions, comments they would like to add, uh, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, other folks, if we missed you totally, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, retired firefighter. Greetings, Gus. And greetings, everyone. Uh, as I mentioned before to the uh, lady who uh, just finished her report, uh, continue to be consistent to... Uh, call law enforcement the moment you see that car or that person or both uh, they're probably are not going to respond uh, on an emergency uh, basis because they would tell you quote unquote a crime has not been committed but if you consistently every time you see it every time you see that car call the police they are supposed to come also because it, although it may not be an emergency, uh, it is, it is uh, something that they get paid to do uh, for a uh, citizen to, uh, to uh, call them and they should respond uh, when uh, under the, uh, under the uh, idea of a suspicious person in the area. As simple as that. That's all it needs to take. And no enfor law enforcement would tell you that otherwise. Um, the lady who uh, called earlier, uh, I would just say, I think, uh, try not to uh, criticize yourself to the level 
to whereas uh, uh, I guess shame is something that probably is kind of may, may not be you know preventable. People you know when you have your your uh, your uh, uh, estimate of yourself to be high because of your self respect that you have. I guess it may affect you in that way, but but don't. Don't uh, let it bother you uh, to that level because I can tell you why. You know, and 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 on jobs, uh, there the white people who is in charge normally is, is who's in charge. Uh, they are always looking for means to be able to uh, uh, make more money or or, or find a way to uh, get rid of people, uh, and, and it. it, it may not have anything to do with you personally as far as other than other than you are a non-white person and in turn those type of things do happen in that light uh so try not to be discouraged about it uh if you decide to stay uh you know just keep doing what you have been doing uh as far as they're concerned if you want to evaluate yourself then you you know evaluate yourself but uh, try not to get too discouraged on that. Uh, it's uh, just trying to say something that make you feel better. Cause I, I can even hear the <clears throat> excuse me the pain in your voice. Uh, DCS program uh, update report uh, today. Had another session today. Uh, basically, uh, there was a non-white black female and her daughter came by uh, and presented the the fellows with uh, uh, tactics and strategies on how to uh, save money, save their money. Uh, And uh, I uh, showed them a film on uh, Muhammad Ali. The name of it is entitled AKA Cassius Clay. Basically, I think it was probably the first extensive documentary that was done on him. Uh, the reason why I suspect that is because it ended it ended uh, even before he uh, was exonerated from um, the uh, quote unquote criminal offense that he was indicted with. What would not uh, stepping forward with the draft it ended it actually ended at that particular point in time uh in the documentary and uh so that's what we saw today and uh, i did have some commentary around it because uh, we always after during the time and after we uh watch the movies or whatever uh we have them to take notes and stuff to so they can have you know quite a good uh, idea and understanding of this particular non-white black person. For the most part, it's black males that we uh, target as far as in these films. Uh, Mr. Singleton, I think uh, the, the actually the most dynamic uh, clip in all of his movies was the one that you uh, aired. What was that? What day was that? Did you, did you do that? Uh, it wasn't. Was it Workplace? Or was it Sundown Town? I don't know what you you, you ran a clip. The clip were uh, Mr. Jackson, I believe. I think I think they call him Ice Cube, uh, and he uh, basically was responding to 
the black males bragging because they beat they beat up uh uh some skinheads in a fight on campus and basically uh the person that played that role uh just observed the bragging that that uh, was going on and basically uh uh brought more uh reality to uh, our global situation uh by stating about uh you know uh these white people own this school they own this sofa that you're sitting on <laughs> they even own you uh we're behind enemy lines you know i've even heard mr fuller state that 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 uh particular uh statement that we're behind enemy lines and uh that's why I, <clears throat> excuse me that's why i say that i think out of all of the black directors that uh, in the modern era anyway mr singleton probably was the most scientific at implementing uh uh counter racist uh strategy in his movies and uh that's one thing i can say that uh played a big part of his legacy and that's all i have to say thank you much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, I neglected to mention uh, we should be here Wednesday. Uh, the Professor Charles Woods, uh, he spent a good bit of time examining white supremacy in film, black cinema. Uh, well, she should be visiting us on Wednesday to discuss uh, John Singleton, his passing, and uh, different ways that he tried to articulate counter racist thoughts in all of his films. But that should be this Wednesday. Uh, and the segment that uh, retired firefighter just mentioned, uh, that is in higher learning. Uh, other folks. Guess what time will she be on on Wednesday? Normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, the number again, 605-313-5166. Six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. While folks are taking their time to get a hand up or get their thoughts together, uh, there were a number, like a substantial number of reports on different non-white students uh, being abused uh, in school settings. Um, there are reports like that on a weekly basis, but, and I, I think I played two or three this week, but it could have been substantially more. Uh, and I thought the school year was ending, at least in this area of the world, uh, if anything. Uh, again, I don't have children, uh, but if you do have children, make sure you are discussing white supremacy racism uh, with your child. Uh, there just were such a wide variety uh, of events. Some of them were involving other students, uh, some of them involving administrators or some combination. Uh, make sure you are speaking with your children uh, about racism and then what they're experiences what's going down uh, at the school uh, because white supremacy racism wow uh, the area of education there was like there could have been but we could have done a whole like 30 minute segment just on uh, white supremacy and academics this week 
Let's see. And I guess if folks are going to do the holiday, I do not participate in holiday. Again, I don't have children. Uh, I do not participate uh, in holidays, but I certainly uh, do not discourage uh, folks from showing any appreciation or gratitude uh, to their attempted mothers, uh, attempted parents, period. Uh, but I certainly would still not do a whole lot of time and energy. I feel like somehow uh, with these holidays, whites are dictating how we use our time and energy by saying, oh, yes, this is so-called Mother's Day tomorrow. So you're supposed to do, you know, whatever these activities are. Generally, I feel like any sort of uh, holiday spending, uh, those coins go back to race soldiers. So you can be as thankful uh, as possible. Uh, that still should not entail a lot of spend. It's the same thing with, you know, any of the other holidays. I would be mindful of that for folks uh, if you're going to participate in all of that tomorrow. Mommies are very important. can end with that. Uh, any other folks have uh, commentary? If we missed anybody, feel free. Uh, other folks, while we're waiting, if you have additional comments and or suggestions. Have you heard? Oh, Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Good evening, guys. Good evening to all the callers. Um, man, um, great commentary. Um, I feel sorry for the lady at her job, her workplace situation. If I was her, I was... Um, Start trying to um, update my resume and put it out there while you still have a job, and uh, hopefully you'll find something better. There's always, um, you know, if not better, different, you know. Um, but um, it seems like um, they're sending you a message, and um, you know that's that seems to be what they want from you. Um, athletes going to the White House after they win a championship. As far as I know, slaves built the White House. I wouldn't go, so I wouldn't care who was the president. Um, that would be the political stance I would be taking as an athlete, star athlete. Um, I mean, it's called the White House. <laughs> um, but just like I don't vote, I, I, I don't feel like um, it doesn't matter if it's Whatever government, town, city, county, state, national, um, they're inherently racist. And from my observation, um, no black people they put into elected office has had the power um, to effectively make any changes or to fulfill their um, office to the um, way that it's supposed to be fulfilled. They have to practice white supremacy. It doesn't matter if they're race. It's built into the system or... or built into the policy of the office. So, um, yeah, I think that voting is um, something we need to shy away from as black people. Um, opioid use disorder. Um, when I grew up, you know, we had, he was coming to the end of the heroin ever, moving into what they called the crack ever. And um, those people were called dope fiends and scagheads. You know, but now there are people who are suffering from opioid use disorder. Um, I don't empathize with white drug addicts at all. I see them all over the city, um, just sitting down, holding a sign, falling asleep, you know, and people walking past, putting change in whatever bucket or cup they got theirs. You know, I feel like that they're, um, they should be taken off the street or put in jail. 
um, these white opioid addicts who come, don't, aren't even from New York. They come from all over the country to come here and um, beg. Um, I think that we're nearing my observation. We're nearing the end of the opium ever. And um, if everything is following suit, uh, we'll see the white crackhead ever. Um, and of course, they'll say they're suffering from cocaine, sodium, biocarbonate disorder, you know, or something like that, you know. But, um, you know, my um, just the patterns of how they've done things, um, it comes it pretty much it, the same way it hits us, it hits them. So, um, you know, after putting them to sleep all these years, they'll get a serious um, wake-up call, and I know that's a metaphor. I apologize, but um, I think that that's going to be the next thing, and nothing's going to be worse than white crackheads. Oh, man. Um, the clip with the white man saying that he's not a racist because his dog is black, that was classic. Like that. Um, Glad you rewinded that because I missed it the first time. <laughs> and when you find the replay, you know, I said, I'll be listening to what this guy says. And yeah, that was a classic clip there. Um, John Singleton, um, man, he, and I looked at some of his works, you know, and um, tribute to him. And like the firefighter says, he does sneak codification inside of his works, but a lot of it's stereotype. Um, but Three movies that he was affiliated with. Two, I didn't even know that he was a, a big-time producer as well. Um, Four Brothers. Um, that was starring Tyrese, Andre 3000, Garrett Hudlin, and Marky Mark Wahlberg. Um, what admitted, um, arrested, and um, charged with being a white supremacist. Um, and they had a white mother... And they were adopted by this white woman, and the white woman gets killed, and then they have to go kill these black guys to get even. And I just thought that was totally off code. Um, Hustle and Flow, he produced that. That won an Academy Award, probably his biggest movie um, as far as um, award-wise. He was the producer. But a black pimp, Terrence Howard, and his white prostitute who happened to be the hero at the end of the movie, along with the brains to get everything done and to get him paid as a rapper. And um, Black Snake Moan. Um, I had no idea he um, absolutely. Um, Samuel Jackson kidnaps and chains up a half-naked white girl who's extremely sexually with He's trying to save her. Uh, this, I just thought those three movies just was like, hmm. Um, John Singleton, why? Um, an article came out this week in Zero Hedge. And it was titled, Leo Cops Are the Most Violent in the World. So I just want everyone to remember the number 992. Um, now, Rio de Janeiro, the city, is has a population of a little over 6 million people. Um, and in Brazil, it would be the equivalent of Los Angeles because they have a even larger city, Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo, which has a population of um, over 12 million. You know, you know, pretty much the size of New York and Los Angeles combined. You know that that was you no know, shocking to see that number. But um, Rio de Janeiro 
last year had 1,534 people killed by the police in that one city, um, 992. That's the number that the FBI put out for the total amount of people killed by police in the United States. So in just one city, which would be like um, Sao Paulo would be like New York, this would be like Los Angeles having, you know, more killing. I mean, like that is, that's an astronomical number. Um, that's not counting the rest of Brazil. That's just one city, not a state, not a county. Um, that's amazing um, and totally um, terrible. Um, and that's all I wanted to say. I have more to add um, later, but, you know, it's compliment disgusting. Much obliged. Wow, that is that is staggering. They do have a higher number of people classified as black in that part of the world, uh, unless I've been misinformed. So maybe the nigger knockers are in greater use uh, since you have more niggers to be knocked. Uh, if other folks uh, who dialed in, if you have uh, commentary to share uh, about any of the segments that have uh, that we heard uh, or if you have your own thoughts certainly there were many other things that had, took place over the last uh, week uh, feel free if we missed you completely and or folks who dialed in if you have additional uh, thoughts to add Ready? yes ma'am okay um, I wanted to say to the woman who spoke earlier, who said that um, she experiences shame behind uh, her emotions. There's a lot of um, emotions that you could have. And in my view, I think they should be anger, maybe sadness, and some other things. But shame should definitely not be one of them. The race soldiers, these terrorists, these savages, they are the ones who should be ashamed. They are the ones who did wrong, and you should not be ashamed for being victimized. And I understand that, that sentiment. I understand that reaction, but you don't have anything to be ashamed for. You didn't do anything wrong. Um, I mentioned um, a race soldier that I dealt with in, 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 um, in a grocery store and how I brought the, um, the manager over to her to explain to the manager and point out the race soldier that was harassing me, I wanted to just mention that the, the race soldier was listening the whole time she was standing there, and that was the whole point, was to to um, report her in front of her. Um, if she was just standing there with a stupid look on her face the whole time, and she had an angry look on her face as well, and she was just um, nodding her head no in denial of what I was saying. Um, that's really all the update I have for that. Um, I think that light should be in the Word Guide, should be in... Um, Mr. Fuller's word got and it may be in there um, because I think that white people, they use light when they don't have nothing to do with a light, right? Like, so if something is not heavy, what does that have to do with a light? Something, you know, lighting things up. Um, they, they just use light for everything. Or if you want to say that you're um, gently doing something or you are, say you're, you're coating a, a pan with grease and you're talking about you're doing it lightly. It's like, oh, what does that have to do with a light? It's like, no, you're just putting a little bit on there or light traffic. I mean, they just try to put, they try to insert the word light in everything, just like they do the word fear, I think. Um, as far as 
Um, also, the woman who spoke earlier, and when she talked about just the mistreatment um, getting to her, um, mistreatment by white people is just, it is absolutely exhausting. I mean, just getting mistreated on a constant basis. And that's what I deal with just every single time I encounter them. I can only imagine what black men go through. Um, if if I have a, if I as a black woman experience this amount of 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 of, um, of mistreatment, and it really provokes me to want to retaliate most of the time. I mean, I wanted to do that to the the race soldier when she tried to hit me with that with that pallet jack, with that forklift. Um, and she was saying, "Oh, I'm just driving crazy," and I, I really wanted to confront her and just say something like, "Nah, you're not driving crazy," and just say something confrontational to her, but I know that that would have accomplished a great a great deal of nothing. Um, so that's why I just, I reported her, but it's definitely um, um, frustrating. And not only is it that, as I said, it's, it's exhausting. Um, and so, um, you know, just like Gus said, like it, it, it really is difficult and you're, you're not alone in terms of your frustration and even depression um, with, um, the mistreatment from the from the race soldiers it's very um, discouraging, and so you know I, I I wish you the best with that, and I and I just hope you know for your mental health that you know things will get better for you, and I really do think that you should um, um, look for another job because they they're harassing you and they they seem to be trying to do everything they can to make you quit, and I think demoting you the way that they have, I think that they tried to humiliate you and and make you feel exactly how you feel with the shame and things like that. The last thing I just wanted to say, I wanted to ask you a question, Gus, which is if the um, program with um, the admitted racist and a brown Griswold, is that still going to happen? And are you still going to tell us, you know, what all happened in terms of the mistreatment or, you know, if you did tell us that I miss it. So that was it. I'm my life. Thanks everyone. Right on. No, you did not miss it. Uh, I have not given out the full details Uh, Anna Brown uh, Griswold is practicing racism uh, and saying she, uh, let's give the exact word, uh, unwilling to return to the program that is going to result in uh, just more time and energy on my part uh, because I told her that her conduct was totally unacceptable. uh, And this is a white woman that's actually like here. We're in the same city. So, uh, to be continued. But yes, I have not given out the full details. Uh, talk about uh, exhausting. That whole situation has been exhausting uh, dealing with that. But that is the system of white supremacy. Uh, the term light, L-I-G-T, L-I-G-H-T, excuse me, and or L-I-T-E, Uh, Those are not directly uh, in the text, but lighten up is uh, do not use this term. Instead, uh, use the term lessen the weight reason during the existence of white supremacy racism. The word lighten used with the word up sometimes has the effect of causing a person to think of lightness and whiteness, whiteness with white people white people with being up as opposed to down and down as associated with dark darkness and or dark people as being the opposite of light bright white 
and or up people. He also has lighter shades of black. I use this term as a racial term referring to non-white people who visually may appear to be brown, beige, red, rust, tan, yellow, etc. Uh, he has lighthearted, do not use this term, instead use the terms cheerful thinking, cheerful thoughts, cheerful acts. Reason, the word light is often directly associated with the word bright, which is often associated with the word white, which is often associated with the word right, or the word good. During the existence of white supremacy racism, all of the aforementioned words are often deliberately used by racist man and racist woman, white supremacists collectively in such a manner as to associate rightness, righteousness, and or goodness with white supremacy racism. You can get your uh, own word guide and or code book, producejustice.com producejustice.com Other folks have thoughts. Thanks, Jeff, for that. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You can get your own word guide and or code book at producejustice.com producejustice.com Neely Fuller Jr., victim of racism, Born in Muskogee, Oklahoma, mentioned in Sundown Towns. Uh, Ivy, did you have more? Um, I was just, um, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so make sure I hit the right button. No, I was just thanking you for answering my questions and um, for reading all that. I think it would have, this is just a, a suggestion. I think it might have would have been easier if he would have just said, don't say light at all unless you're really talking about a light, like when he said about dirty, don't say dirty at all, unless you're really talking about dirt. But either way, I mean, it was brilliant, everything that he um, put in there. And I also wanted to make this clear. John Singleton, to me, was a legendary and brilliant film filmmaker. I'll mute my line. Thanks, guys. For sure. Mm-hmm. I know from Thomas in New York, uh, Black Snake Moan. That film was referenced within the last 30 days. Somebody else, I think even before he passed away, somebody that I was around just mentioned that film, which I have seen. Uh, I believe a white man directed that film, may have even wrote that film as well. And Mr. Singleton did the uh, financing for that project, which is, you know, interesting why you would finance such a film. But I do. And in fact, I think. David Banner, victim of white supremacy, is in Black Snake Moan. Uh, let's see. The person uh, dialed in. Make sure we are not missing folks. Uh, uh, other folks dialed in. If we missed you totally, if you have commentary to share, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, it's one more, one more uh, report that I forgot to make. Uh, the city of Miami Gardens is hosting uh, a huge rap concert. Uh, 
I kind of forgot about it. It's called loud something. I, I don't know what, what the other word that was connected with it. Uh, and also the Honorable Oliver Gilbert, the mayor, uh, came on the news and uh, reported on how uh, happy he was to be able to uh, get this concert. Uh, <clears throat> I, I've, like I said, I totally forgot about it, but as I was riding down the main avenue in the city of Miami Gardens, I noticed groups of white females, something that is would be considered to be very unusual in the city of Miami Gardens. And, uh, and for me, thinking about this, uh, what I saw, then I connected connected with the concert, uh, the rap concert. Uh, from my understanding, for the most part, uh, although it's something that primarily most of the entertainers are, are non-white black people, but most of the audience or a large portion of the audience is white people. And I gathered from a lot of young people the reason why is because of the astronomical prices that it takes to attend uh, these uh, ventures. Uh, and I think uh, the cost for two, maybe three days for this concert is somewhere in the vicinity of $600. And... Uh, uh, so I can see where that would be uh, less affordable for non-white people and uh, affordable for uh, white people to attend. And I, what was interesting to me that most of the people that I've seen up and down uh, this avenue uh, not just going to the concert, but also uh, spending money in some of the stores, uh, white females. And I thought that was interesting. Thank you. This is the Rolling Loud Hip Hop Festival in... That's, 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 that's what it is. That's, that's the word, Rolling Loud. <laughs> the report... Uh, Whatever that means. From the Miami Herald uh, reads, Lil Wayne, victim of racism refuses to perform oh, boy. at Miami Hip Hop Festival after cops checked him. And they had that word in quotes. Uh, rapper Lil Wayne told his fans he would not be performing at a Miami Gardens Hip Hop Festival Saturday night after police tried to check him before going on stage. To all my fans who came to see me at Rolling Loud, I'm sorry, but I won't be performing. The rapper posted on Twitter, the festival police, not Rolling Loud, made it mandatory that I had to be policed and checked to get on the stadium grounds. He added, I do not and will not ever settle for being policed to do, to do my job and give you guys a great show. This sounds like it could be workplace racism too. Miami Gardens Police said Miami-Dade Police was the lead agency. Miami-Dade Police did not immediately respond Saturday night, although it's unclear what other law enforcement agencies were present at the concert and which agency required security clearance for the rapper. Uh, and they give some of the folks at the lineup uh, at the Hard Rock Stadium. I think that's where the Hurricanes play. But yes, even at the Rolling Out. And the Dolphins. Of course. Even at Rolling Out, mm -hmm. 
racism, white supremacy seems to be a problem. I'd want to know if any other of the artists were required to be frisked before hitting the stage. I would say also, I would say also that, uh, uh, that area is probably the safest place right now in this part of the world. <laughs> well, not, that's probably not the right word to say safe. The most policed, quote unquote, policed area in this part of the world. I was, that, that's probably more accurate than safe. <laughs> right on. Let's see. Any other? Yeah, um, uh, rolling loud. That's a synonym for rolling up um, good weed. Um, so it's not ironic that they would be um, checking people. I've been to several hip-hop concerts uh, in, New, in New York. They have a huge one. I used to not miss. It's called Summer Jam, and um, at Giant Stadium. And I've never, I, except for like being in a club or something, never been to a hip hop concert where uh, the predominant amount of people that were there were, were black. Um, it's mostly white people, and um, they spend money mm-hmm. when they go to the concert. They are buying the T-shirts, the jackets. They, they have, um, you know, they're, they're putting money into those um, artist castles, way more so than the black person who just went there. We might buy a, a, a drink, you know, and we already spent $200, $300 for the ticket. We're not spending too much more than that. If they're going there to spend money. They're going there to get drunk, not just to have a drink. They're going there to, to smoke, you know, that they go to the concerts to, to really go. And um, they're mm. not police the same way we are at concerts. Um, there was a situation in California um, where these four teachers were um, holding a noose and the picture was put out on the internet and um, those four teachers were suspended. It appeared to be white. One of them could have been a, a Spanish-speaking person um, who was fair, uh, lighter, lighter complexion. However, um, the four teachers and the principal were suspended because the principal was the person who took the picture and posted it. Um, In the same state, you had a teacher, and I don't think this was a black woman. I don't know. They didn't show her face, but it was unjust. Um, She has cancer, and they're making her have to pay out of her salary for her substitute while she gets the cancer treatment, and that's the state law. So these four teachers who hold the noose don't get suspended. They, I mean, they don't get fired. They get suspended. Um, the union's protecting them, obviously. However, they, the union is allowing uh, the state to force the teachers to pay for their substitutes. It's like um, just totally like how white people prioritize things. Um, it, 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 you know, it never seems to surprise me. Um, um, this, um, I've been getting a lot of emails and things from people who listen to the show and, you know, they, they tend to have this um, notion in their mind. Um, somehow um, there's going to be um, uh, incursion from Russia and China um, here in, the, in, in um, Venezuela and the United States is going to um, somehow lose a war to Russia and China. And uh, Gus, what was the name of that book we read? It was the rising tide of race, uh, 
It was the um, Dr. Rising, Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, Lothrop Stoddard. 1919. All right, they did a book on the black races, the white races, and the, oh, about half the book was on the yellow race in 100 years, how they were going to be, have to step up their white supremacy to deal with them. So if that book was written 100 years ago, and they predicted pretty much what's happening right now, you have to assume that these people are prepared for that. Um, they've had 100 years of research. I mean, this is, this is just how they do things. Um, so what, everything you're seeing, they're, they're the people behind it. <laughs> you know, um, um, I, I just can't see how a country... <laughs> that has United States aircraft carriers um, anchored in their sea is going to bring ships over here to help some black people. It just doesn't make sense. Um, and also, you have the Monroe Doctrine, Big Stick Diplomacy. You know, look these up. The Roosevelt Cavalry. Um, what you see in Venezuela already happened before. You know, so um, I, I just don't see it. Um, and I'll meet my line. Thank you. Uh, I don't know who's proposing that, but yeah, those <laughs> non-white people from those areas of the world, so-called Asian company uh, countries, uh, warships coming to support black people or any other non-white people, that doesn't seem logical to me either in a system of racism, white supremacy. But I could be wrong. Uh, we have... Less, we have about 10 minutes left in the broadcast. Uh, again, we should be here Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, the professor, Charles Woods, uh, will discuss John Singleton's uh, films and how he attempted to discuss racism, white supremacy, even some of his projects that uh, they weren't necessarily films that he wrote or directed himself, but he did do the financing, like Black Snake Moon. Uh, any other folks have comments, questions, commentary they wanted to share? May I be heard? Greetings, caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, there was an article I was reading on Apparently, there is something called the uh, let's see, it's the Racial Task Force or something like that. And they had formulated something called the Friendship 7, where it's the University of Florida, um, Alachua County, City of Gainesville, and the, I think, Florida Chamber of Commerce, and a few other organizations where I guess they were supposed to have this meeting uh, a few weeks ago, and I guess it was talking about equity, quote-unquote, about education um, and employment and housing discrimination and various topics. And a portion of it mentioned that the U.S. president uh, refused to come to the, I guess, the uh, the forum. And from from what I read, the NAACP representative said that he didn't, he felt like he was going to be attacked. 
and criticize, but that term attack, um, you know, I, I, I focused on that. That's a very uh, racist way to uh, display that. I guess he may may have felt like he <laughs> like uh, he was going to practice racism. Maybe his racism was going to come out. Um, but I guess it was just another one of those type of uh, committee discussions or whatever. I don't know what was done from it or whatever. Maybe it's, I think they said it was supposed to be another one later on this year, like in November or something. But uh, another one was when they were mentioning the in the audio segment about um, going to the White House. I think that was the, the baseball team, I believe. And they kept using the term a stark racial divide, like his racism um, being practiced from non-white people. I know they use the term people of color, but non-white people are not practitioners of racism. So when they're using terminology like that, it's going to generate more confusion. And for them to mention Tiger Woods, like he can utilize that to, uh, to say, I guess, that he's not. Uh, he or he shouldn't be accused of being a racist. I guess Donald Trump. Maybe that's what they were trying to say. Um, and my next one was uh, Gus. What what was the the uh, the analysis you had about Sandra Bland and the the term that that it should be? Or I can't remember what it was. Uh, just there should be a term when whites when they have information but they don't. Uh, reveal that information immediately. They conceal it and they'll wait for an indefinite amount of time uh, until it suits their racist purpose to release the information that there should be a term uh, for that. Uh, And I felt with Sandra Bland because they waited, I think, like four years uh, to release this cell phone video footage. uh, And just that I thought that that was done just to terrorize black people in general and her family releasing that footage so close to Mother's Day, so-called, even though they know that this is not going to do anything. They even said in the clip that that wasn't new footage and this was not going to no new investigation, no prosecution. Just, you know, we get to remind you, yes, we terrorized that nigra and did nothing about it. Oh, thank. Okay, thanks for the um, the context on that, because especially with the uh, the interactions with race soldiers, I know there's been a lot more um, reports, even just on the the uh, daily news, black people being uh, killed and murdered by uh, law enforcement or so-called law enforcement. Uh, there, my last thing was there was a, another uh, commercial that came on. I don't know if anyone's seen this. It was a black female. I guess she was uh, eating cookies, I guess, laying by the bathtub. And a child comes and knocks on the door and says, Mommy, Mommy. And she is looking from left to right. And she uh, mimics a male voice and says, This is Dad. And the child uh, walks away and starts saying Mommy elsewhere. So. Uh, I know Mr. Fuller mentions degenderization. Uh, that's what I thought about when I saw that commercial. I think it was Pepperidge Farm. Wow, I have not seen that commercial, but uh, I'll see if I can find it maybe on YouTube and share. But that uh, I do think any of those types of commercials uh, where they've got uh, females sounding like males or wearing the opposite 
clothes, that sort of thing uh, for black people. All of that, I think, is absolutely correct. Degenderization, uh, once you can get people totally confused uh, about their gender, they will be confused about everything else. Mr. Fuller said that directly. Uh, let's see. We have last three minutes. Any other comments, folks? Oh, I found that I'll share. Uh, I'll post it on social media, the bathtub uh, Pepperidge Farm commercial. I'll share so people can check it out. Any other folks have comments they wanted to share before we wrap things up? I just want to say I think the advice that you gave us about um, Mother's Day and spending um, was great. Um, thank you for that. And to all the wonderful mothers out there, enjoy your day tomorrow, and happy Mother's Day to you tomorrow, today, and every day after that. I'll mute my line. Thanks, Gus. Indeed, indeed. Any other final comments folks need to get in before we conclude? I will assume folks are satisfied. Uh, again, we should be here uh, Wednesday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, the professor, Charles Woods, will review uh, the film works of Mr. John Singleton, just passed away at the age of 51, victim of white supremacy. With that, we will call it a broadcast. Uh, much obliged to all the folks uh, who listened, participated. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Sobriety would be best, even with so-called holidays. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Let's do all that we can to protect our brain computers uh, so that we can come up with solutions to the problem. In addition to being sober, Let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.